Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Friday morning, December the 8th, 843-661-0937 is our number. We're not in our world headquarters, dominating the media airwaves as only the Royal Rev and yours truly can do. We're <laughs> actually at the Myrtle Beach Hilton, uh, I think at Kingston Plantation, if I'm not right, uh, if I'm not wrong, I think for you're the right. Fitzrack, first in the South Republican Action Convention is that it? Conference. Yeah, conference. Okay, not convention, conference. Um, Republican activists from all over the state will gather um, today, tomorrow, and I would imagine into Sunday to discuss game plans and strategies. Of uh, We've got a lot of representatives here from presidential campaigns. I'm about to jack me a DeSantis and Vivek hat here. In the uh, in the next in the next break or two, some of the uh, some of the early hands aren't here uh, first thing this morning, but it is here to um, I guess engage an electorate, uh, try and create a um, an infrastructure, and I can't imagine a, a more important time, Rev, than now to create an infrastructure. I wish to try and win elections. Uh, I went back and looked last night, knowing we were going to be here today, and probably not talk as much about Hunter Biden and some of the issues he has. We'll get to that Monday morning. Um, but today we're going to try and dedicate a lot of the show, especially later uh, when some of these high and mighty dignified politicians decide to roll out of the bed and make their way down here. Uh, Rev and I are humble servants. Oh, yes. And we're here preparing, uh, preparing the, uh, the masses for what is to come. But I went, went back and looked last night, and I, I, I don't know, just kind of busy head syndrome, started thinking about the Democratic Republican Party. Um, Thomas Jefferson, and out of that came the Republicans and then the failing of the Federalists and a lot of history there. But if you think of the, the modern Republican Party, and I guess this is, um, this is my adherence to its uh, kind of its, uh, I don't know, its basic political perspective of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, I'm not saying Jefferson founded the modern-day Republican Party, but his influences reek, uh, I mean, they've just been substantial in its uh in its formation in its evolution and and it's it's kind of interesting now we have one of these internal debates within the party but but the one thing i don't think we've ever debated i mean we've debated globalism we've debated interventionism we've debated trade policy and and we've some conservatives really have tried to argue that the founders are this monolithic they weren't i mean i don't think you I mean, you told me when we started this show 11 or 12 years ago, that you weren't as politically astute as you are today. And I would right. imagine people in your position who didn't have a burning desire to know as much about, about politics as you know now, you, you, it was pretty easy because traditional media and, and, and a lot of these, I don't know, loud and proud voices try to convince America that these founders were this almost, that, that it, was, it was an easy consensus. I mean, they, they kind of agreed on about everything, but they didn't. I mean, they had passionate disagreements. Um, one of the most important founders was Jefferson and Jefferson believed that you know the principle of life liberty the pursuit of happiness and alienable rights was something that um I don't know he made such a big part of what he believed and what he was willing to commit to um and as we sit in this empty hotel at 6 10 this morning I mean it'll eventually fill up by the time we get off the air there'll be many 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 uh, Republican activists that have made this way their way into um, this so yeah I mean we're dealing with a with a situation right now that we find, um, you know, the recent Republican Party up until the time Donald Trump shows up 
was a, an interventionist globalist, you know, policy. It just was. I mean, that, you know, I'm not saying it's bad or good, and I think you can legitimately argue uh, globalism and, and interventionism. I'm, I'm more anti-intervention and anti-globalist than I've ever been in my life. Um, but the one thing the Republicans have always rallied around, the one thing I think they've always, and it goes back to my belief about the founders, the founders weren't a monolith by any stretch, but they were very believing in the principles of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. They were liberty lovers. They wanted to express freedom and celebrate freedom. Uh, you know, Hamilton had his idea about how to better celebrate it. How, uh, Jefferson had his idea about how to better celebrate it. So the great debate for the first, what, 50 or 60 years of America was a Hamiltonian you know, growing the big central government, allowing the government to, uh, you want to go back to the era of enlightenment, um, Hamilton would have been influenced by Thomas Hobbes, who wrote Leviathan and said, you can't trust man on its own. You know, the, 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 the strong will take advantage of the weak. We got to have this, this central planner to make sure everything works as it should. And Jefferson said, that's nonsense. I mean, that's craziness. You got to trust man. And, um, and they're going to be winners and losers. But, you know, the pursuit of happiness and, um, and the guarantee of liberty was something that was central and I think it's still central. So when, you, when we talk to these people today, I got to believe that they'll come from a, uh, a lot of different perspectives when it comes to what to do about trade, what to do about abortion, what to do about uh, intervention or not, what to do about um, you know, this, um, this economy that's so connected and globalist in nature. But, but I don't think you'll hear anybody come and sit with us and call themselves a Republican and say, hey, I'm for government you know, taking care of this, or I'm for government um, taking care of that. I, I think Drew McKissick will be with us. The reason he was not with us yesterday is he'll be with us today at some point in time, and we'll kind of, um, we'll talk a little bit about, you know, the, the, uh, the brand that is a Republican, some of the tailwinds, some of the headwinds, some of the, uh, so some of the strategies they hope to employ in winning the national election. I mean, we're here celebrating not necessarily just a presidential campaign, but obviously there's a great deal of focus on the 2024 presidential cycle. Um, in the state of South Carolina, I looked last night, I thought I knew this, um, and the only thing I didn't check was Senate. But um, in the state of South Carolina, the Republicans hold six of the seven congressional districts. They hold both Senate seats. They have nine of nine statewide constitutional officers are Republicans. In the House, I think it's 124 members, and it's 8836 is the advantage the, um, the Republicans have in the state House of Representatives. So it's a, I mean, it's a red state. It's a very red state. Um, the Republican brand has been successful in South Carolina, but it's not been without some of these internal squabbles. Um, you've got a, it's kind of an interesting situation that we find ourselves in. We've got a, a fairly recent governor of South Carolina running for president and appears to be trailing, you know, Donald Trump by 30 percentage points in, in the home state. I text with a, um, a former Republican operative as I am a former elected official, somebody who was um, in the mix when, back in my day. And we were talking about, you know, Haley and Ramaswamy and some of the, some of the back and forth. And um, somebody basically said, do you think Nikki is corrupt? And I said, well, what do you mean? I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a broad reaching question. Um, did Nikki play a game to end up on the better side of financial arrangements because of our political influence? Yes, absolutely. I mean, do you really believe that had Nikki Haley not been governor of, of South Carolina, not been involved in negotiating some of the Boeing deal that came, I think there's 120 or $30 million in tax benefit 
that I was given to Boeing. I'm not saying it's good or bad. I mean, I would have been for supporting. I was, at, I was in Columbia at the tail end of some of that. They were putting a bow on it, so to speak. Some of the joint uh, bond review board was finalizing some of the uh, state financing of, you know, Boeing's enormous investment in South Carolina. Is that corrupt? I'll let you decide. I mean, I don't know. I mean, is it stealing money? No. Is it embezzling money? No. Is it robbing a bank? No. Is it, you know, um, murder? No. I mean, it's not against the natural law, and, um, but, but it is, it, it's, it's kind of that inside baseball that people are really and truly frustrated and bothered by. So when you ask a question, is someone corrupt, um, well, I mean, there's a lot of different ways to skin a cat in politics. And um, maybe that's why we've gotten where we are, is people are so frustrated and bothered and resent the way the, uh, the game is played, um, so to speak. But I think you've got to be insane or, or just blinded by your loyalty to whatever it is you believe. I'm talking to Gamecocks and Tigers here now. You know, you and I were talking before the show about some of the offensive linemen South Carolina signed. Yeah, we're talking the important business. Well, I mean, as frustrated as you're about the end of football season, you're like, well, I mean, next year, you know how that thing will be. I mean, if, they, if these two five-stars work out, you know, I mean, so, so there's always eternal optimism. Yeah, so don't make me say well, it. I mean, wait, don't make me say wait till next year. Well, I mean, there, there, there's a, well, I mean everybody says that. There, there's irrational. Well, I mean, if you're a football fan, the year, the year ends, what is there to do but wait for next year? Well, that's year, true. Right? You have nothing I mean, else. Well, I mean, if you're a huge college football fan, the season's over. I mean, every fan, Nebraska, South Carolina, Alabama, Georgia, I mean, theirs normally ends a little later than everybody else's, <laughs> you know, but, I, but still is wait, wait until next year because it's a fresh start and a new beginning. But, but I, you know, once again, to the central question of corruption in politics and, you know, what is crossing the line, I'll ask you that. I mean, you're the only person in the room with me this morning. Okay. So Governor Haley was not in charge, but she, she led the charge of making sure Boeing – um, got what they needed to make a, the commitment they made to South Carolina. Uh, I think it ended up being in the neighborhood, don't quote me on this, of $120, $130 million in taxpayer dollars that were invested in um, economic development. I'm using right. air quotes here right. to, and, to and lure this, Boeing and create all these jobs, this enormous investment. Um, a decision that most uh, South Carolinians would probably agree is good for our state. Sure. I mean, it would be, um, I mean, it could be to Charleston what BMW was to Greenville and, and Gaffney and Spartanburg and the areas yep. in the upstate. N- nobody can say that was a bad deal. Yep. And, and Carol Campbell had his critics. You know, back in the day, a Republican governor in a, in a conservative state deciding to allow government to, to basically um, negotiate, barter, invest in, uh, in, 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 you know, creating opportunities in, in the upstate. Same thing in Bowie. So when Nikki, you know, uh, progresses in her political career, and, I mean, I know how that happened, and, and I think anybody else knows how that happened. Henry McMaster made a good call by endorsing Donald Trump for president. When Trump gets elected, and Henry would have been an important part. I mean, he got a sitting governor in an in a early state that needs to, um, I mean, it, you know, if you win in South Carolina, it validates, it legitimizes, it, you know, it, it, um, it confirmed that Trump was a very serious candidate. And Henry was lieutenant governor. Henry then, right? was, you're right, lieutenant yeah. governor, became governor. Uh, but Henry was lieutenant governor, one of the first statewide elected officials in one of the states that matter. I'm talking about Iowa. Um, we've got Kim Reynolds in Iowa who has endorsed Ron DeSantis. Do you believe if DeSantis goes on and upsets Trump and wins the primary that Reynolds will remain the governor of Iowa? No, she'll end up with some spectacular job, and her world will be forever transformed and changed. That's, I think, what people find a little bit distasteful. 
Yeah, you, but to answer your question, because it boils down to, you know, is this corrupt? Um, it's not illegal, okay? So that's, that's my first test. Obviously, if there was illegality, it would be illegal and corrupt, probably. It had to be criminal charges, probably. Right. Um, but, you know, but so, I'd, so I, I would stop just short of saying corrupt, you know, it's, I mean, it stinks. You, it, it, it doesn't smell good, you know, and, and it's not altruistic, okay? It's not, you know, doing things for the right reason. Then, it's not public service? Exactly. Even oh, though now? you might claim oh, it is. <laughs> well, helping, I mean. Helping Boeing come to South Carolina and then end up in the Boeing board. Right. That's, that's the epitome of public service. Oh, yeah, right. Okay. I'm with you. No, but you know what I'm saying. That just because you asked my opinion as an observer, okay, not in that game, but having seen it and then answering the basically the charge that uh, Vivek made on the stage the other night, calling her corrupt. I would just stop short because there's there's not an illegality there, and it is. I mean, unfortunately, I hate to say it, but that's just kind of how the world works. Am I right? So should it be how the world works? No. Isn't that the debate we're having? That, that, I think that. I, mean, is, I think yeah. people understand that, that Nikki probably didn't break any laws. I think people understand that the Trump family, I mean, let's be fair here. I mean, the Trump family um, probably had some advantages that others don't have when they were, when their father, and I'm talking about Ivanka, Jared, and uh, excuse me, Ivanka, Jared would be the husband of Ivanka, and he had a lot of business interests. His family had a lot of a lot of business interests. So you got Ivanka, Eric, and Donald Jr., or Don Jr., right? Yeah. Um, I mean, do you really believe that their lives were exactly the same, their business opportunities were exactly the same, you know, while their father was, was president? And I, I just think it's, um, it's symptomatic of why people are so frustrated with politics. Um, going back to Nikki. Um, I don't think there's, well, I know there's not anything illegal about it. The question you've got to ask yourself, is it right? I mean, you know, is, is it the way things should be? When a governor entices or has a hand, it's not her money, and she can't make the call on her own. I mean, I know some of the people that work hard. Uh, you got bond attorneys. you got finance committee chairs. you got ways and means chairs. I mean, you got a lot of people that work to make sure Boeing had what they needed to make that investment. But it is pretty interesting that Boeing comes to South Carolina, Nikki ends up on a big corporate board, and it's not, um, it's not GM. It's not Ford. It's not, you know, um, Hyundai. It's, it's, one of the, um, it's one of the companies that, right. that she had a hand in uh. creating certain financial advantages in, in the state of South Carolina. So we're here at, um, at the Sheridan, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Hilton. Uh, sorry, sorry, the Hilton. The Hilton. I better write that down. I'll say Marriott, Hilton, Sheridan. I'll name them all before it's over with. But we are Motel at, Six. Yeah, we are at the Hilton, spectacular property. Yeah. Um, Rev got down here last night. I got here this morning, um, but it's uh, a bit chilly. There's a lot of um, setups around, and as we progress through this morning's show, we'll have a lot of different guests. I think some will probably be going to be honest, Rev. Mm-hmm. Some will be interesting. Some will suck. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just kind of the nature of what we do here. But, um, but Josh and some of the organizers here at Fitzrack have helped us line up some of our um, some of our guests. So as the morning progresses, as some of these high and mighty people wake up and decide to mix with the peasants, we'll um, <laughs> we'll get them here at our at our table sooner than later. But um, but anyway, thank you for joining us. Be a different show. Be patient with us. Um, it'll be less of our typical you know conservative talk radio, more specifically about where the Republican Party is today. Uh, in South Carolina, where it's headed, what it looks like, what the landscape looks like as we head to a first-in-the-South Republican presidential primary. Back in a few.
Welcome back, 843-661-0937, as we are at the Hilton property in Kingston Plantation, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, for the first, is it the first? Yeah, first annual uh, Fitz Rack. This is the Republican Action Conference celebrating the first in the South Republican uh, primary. Got some reading material here now. Yeah, look at there. A big picture of the Ferris wheel and whatnot. Look at that. Yeah, we got some itinerary of people that will be here, and I will appear we got some... Um, I'm going to jack me one of those Vivek hats. <laughs> I know. My, my daughter's got this thing about her. My, my daughter was, I mean, a big part of my campaign. When I ran for office, my daughter was a, um, I mean, I'll tell a quick story. I told the zebra story yesterday. I'll tell you a good story. <laughs> so so um, I meet Robert Cahaley at Lizard's Thicket in Columbia. I talked to a former chairman of the GOP in South Carolina, and I, and I you know, said, hey, look, I don't know what to do. I mean, these folks have convinced me to run for lieutenant governor, and I don't know who to hire. I don't know what to do. I don't know my butt from third base. Uh, the person said, hire this person or that person. And one of the people they recommended was Robert Cahaley. So Robert and I meet at um, Lizard's Thicket in Columbia. And we, over the years, I mean, you, you know the friendship. I mean, it's a very deep friendship. And anytime you go through a political crap storm together, it, it breeds a, I don't know, a trust in one another and a friendship and a bond. It's unfortunate you go through some of those things, but it does intensify that loyalty you have to one another. So, Robert, I hire Robert. Um, we're, we're doing okay. I mean, we're not spending much money. We don't have any money to spend, so we're doing okay early in the campaign, and it's time to start doing television ads. So we're, you know, we're, we're talking to this person, to that person, another person. Um, I lived out on a farm in the country. So Robert hires this television crew. They come out to our property, and we're going to do these television ads for a day. And I got a, you know, <coughs> excuse me, Robert's got a blue shirt and a red shirt. Ah, wear this and roll your sleeves up and do this. And go <coughs> oh, oh, really? So, so it gets that detailed? Yeah, well, he he don't, don't say it that way. Say it this way. So, so anyway, Libby's right. My daughter, Libby, is about, I'm thinking about she's 20 now. So 13, she would have been about seven, six or seven, riding a bicycle, getting in the way, you know, aggravating everybody, didn't know what, it was, what typical little seven-year-old girls do, especially when they're busybodies. And she would have been kind of a busybody. Um, so Libby's kind of, you know, Robert's being real nice and everybody's being real nice, but Libby's always in the way. You know, the bicycle leaning against the camera. You know what I mean? And <laughs> the the, the $100,000 piece of equipment, Libby's yeah. leaning on it like, oh. <laughs> so, um, so anyway, Ro Robert, toward the end of the, the, end of the day, says, um, Libby, come here a second. Sit in your dad's lap and say, I'm Libby Art and I approve this message. And Libby sat in my lap, cameras are rolling. Libby said, I'm Libby Art and I approve this message. It was gold. I mean, I think she may have done it twice. I'm Libby Art and I approve this message. And we went from 9% of the poll to 17 or 18 or 19. I mean, there were four people in the race. Um, Brilliant. Yeah, well, I mean, it was, you know, it, we call lighting in a bottle, so to speak. And, um, and despite what you folks believe and see on debate stages, there is a respectful camaraderie. And one of my chief rivals in the Republican primary called me like the day after the ad debuted, and he said, I'm getting out. And I said, what do you mean? He said, I don't have a Libby. <laughs> he said, I'm older. My kids are grown. They're not cute anymore. You know, they're painting the butts. I'm getting out. I don't have a Libby. And he got out. Now, whether he got out because of that, I don't, I've never confirmed. But he said, I'm out. Uh, you know, so, so anyway. These, um, these sorts of events have always been important. I mean, they, they were how I built my campaign, and they'll be how others, others build their campaign. We don't think Robert will be available 
I think he's traveling yeah, today. He'll be here at some point in time. I just was looking at the itinerary, and it looks like his um, session is not until tomorrow here. So that's why he, he's probably not going to be here before we get off well, the Well, I mean, he's morning. not an opening act any longer. When we were together, he was an opening act. Right. Now, now he's a headliner. Yeah. I mean, he's one of the uh, <laughs> one of the leading pollsters and strategists I hate to tell you the this, Republican Party. <clears throat> I think we're the opening act. Yeah, well, I see that. <laughs> I but see, that we're, we're, and I assumed we wouldn't we're be. We're here early. And I'm quite fine with that. 843 <laughs> Oh nine three seven, and I mean, I mean, there's something out there that you've got on your mind. Call in. I mean, we're in a different place, but we're still doing kind of sort of the same thing. Not exactly um, the same thing, but yeah, cause, uh, cause there's a lot going on in the political world. I mean, I was seeing the news last night about uh, Hunter Biden indicted and some stuff going on. So but, but yeah, phone lines let, are open. But, but let's be a bit sympathetic, and maybe this is my personal experience mm-hmm. interfering with my political biases. Hunter Biden was a drug addict. And, and I, I don't think we can ever lose sight of that. I mean, there, there's no doubt, Rev, he enjoyed benefits that nobody else would enjoy. He's had treatment that nobody else will get, and that's not right. That really goes back to what we discussed about, you know, being on the Boeing board, you know, being a part of enticing Boeing to come to South Carolina. Uh, they can't come if the governor doesn't want, you know what I mean. If the governor doesn't sign on to the incentive package, they can't come to South Carolina. They did. Did they reward her with a board seat? I don't know. I don't have any idea if that's the case. So there's no doubt that Hunter Biden's got problems. There's no doubt that he should be held accountable. But I, I still think there's a that there's a human component here that we can't miss. Yeah, and that part of it is, and I think his charges are related to tax evasion. But 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 a lot of at one point, I think he took over a million dollars out of ATM machines. A million six was the report out I of saw. ATM machines. Right. How many of you have taken a million six out of ATM <laughs> machines? Yeah, and no matter what he used them for, and again, the charges I don't think have anything to do with, uh, with, you know, drug use but, and but, all but that. But if he took one point six million dollars out of an ATM, he's not going to that many movies. Right. I mean, he's not buying, he's not getting, I mean, you yeah. know where I'm yeah, headed. I mean, it, I'm just saying that leads me to believe that he was under the influence of, of drugs. Now, now, it doesn't make it any different. I mean, there's still a legal consequence to that, and I'll accept that. I just don't want the Republicans to get themselves in a fix. And I'm telling you, the American people, the independents are sympathetic to people who have struggles, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. And if it appears that one party is piling on that, that you will make Hunter Biden into a sympathetic figure. I'll give you an example. Did you ever imagine that Americans would be sympathetic of Donald Trump? But they are. Right. Why? Because they're piling because on. Because they, they have a sense that, wow, man, I mean, they're piling on that guy. Yeah. I mean, he's narcissistic. He might be a jerk. He's a blowhard. He's all these. But, I mean, really? I mean, you, you, you un, I mean, people naturally are inclined to be sympathetic of people who they don't believe are being treated fairly. And I do believe that Hunter Biden. I think the Biden family are the Sopranos from Delaware. I mean, personally, that's who I think they are. I've been, I mean, I've been very consistent in that. I think they're the most corrupt crime family the White House has ever seen. I believe that. But I think there's a tact and strategy that has to be employed in going out and pursuing what it is they did. And I'm just telling you that if you make as a central feature of this going after the Bidens, the $1.6 million he withdrew from ATM machines, you're going to create sympathy because he's going to come out and say, you know, I was a drug addict. My life was in total chaos. I didn't have any idea what right was and wrong was, and I'm sorry for that. I mean, I was uh, under the influence. And, and once again, maybe that is 
skewed by my personal experience and what I've dealt with and how easy I know good and decency can turn into something that ain't so good and decent if you're under the influence of some sort of, of illicit drug or illicit drug for that matter. It doesn't have to be illicit. The last time I checked, booze was legal. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it could be one uh, or the other. 843-661-0937. We are at the first in the South Republican Action Conference at the Hilton Hotel, downtown, not downtown. There is no downtown Myrtle Beach. Uh, well, I mean, I guess the ocean would be the, uh, the downtown, the yeah. epicenter of why people come down. Uh, we're at Kingston Plantation. Yeah, we're at Kingston Plantation on the north end of, um, of Myrtle Beach. 843-661-0937. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. We're at the Hilton in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, Kingston Plantation with Fitchrack, first in the south. Republican Action Conference, we've been corrected. Yep. It's the second annual, second year they've had the first in the South Republican Action Conference. I guess a couple of years ago, we came and broadcast from the first, first in the South Republican Action I Conference. I think we may have. Yep. I think indeed we yeah, did. Down the road at the, at the Marriott. So now uh, we can say we've been to all of them. Yep, we have. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Breeze is calling in. Good morning, Breeze. Hey, guys. I figured I'd call if you crap a little bit, y'all. I got him a slow morning. Figure we could either talk about uh, uh, working out or politics, but uh, it is up to you, kid. What you feel like talking about this morning? I'm in the political mood this morning. All right. Well, you know, you mentioned that uh, Vicki Haley is former Republican governor of South Carolina, and she's losing to Donald Trump. Now, I don't think anybody really thinks Donald Trump's a Republican. You don't think he is, do you? Uh, I think he's got some Republican ways about him. Yeah, but, you know, he's not, well, let's just put it like this way. He doesn't remind you of Niles and Fraser Crane. You know what I mean? (laughs) Correct. Yeah. You know, and so, you know, he's not really, you know, he's not really that guy. He's, you know, the point I'm making is, so is South Carolina really Republican or they more Trump? In other words, are there more of us that, like you and I, Dave, than there are of Miles and Frazier? You dig what I'm saying? Sure I do. Because I have some rich Republican friends every now and then <clears throat> would invite me to stuff like you're at right there. And I think they did it just for laughs. I think they wanted me to go over there and just scare the crap out of Niles and Frazier. Because I would show up at those things wearing a cowboy hat, blue jeans, and the whole nine yards. And all that, I, and, and you can see all the dolls and, and Frasers in the room were just staring over there. And they were just scared. And say, and that's probably I think one of the things about the Republican Party. I remember being a little five-year-old kid or younger and seeing Tommy Ragsdale's uh, big old '98, and on his bumper sticker it said Republican. And my mother came up for. I said, "What's the Republican, Mama?" She goes, "Rich people, honey." And all that, I think that uh, I think that somewhere down the line, these uh, Niles and Fraser cranes have got to got to daggone give people like myself and a lot of the other guys that are maybe working out a Jiffy Lube, doing some HVAC work, doing some cat, doing some other type of band work, that daggone vote for their butt, uh, and then they look down their nose at them. So there ain't no mistake about this kid too. Most of those cats there don't give three rats passes about guys like me or you. 
Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. Well, I mean, I, I, the, the warning that I've given, and who am I to give anybody a warning? I've got a radio show, and, I, and I've won races. I mean, I, 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 the, the one thing, I, I've said this before, Rev, the only reason that I'd pay me any attention, and I mean this sincerely, in, in politics is I've never lost and I've never been the favorite. Well, if you've never lost and you've never been the favorite, you're hitting a nerve with something. There's something you're doing that, that, that is relatable to the people you're trying to convince to be your supporter. Um, it's not rocket science. So, so, so let's say that, that Breeze is right and Trump's not really a Republican in, tradi- in the traditional sense. Does the party try to mold Trump into what it wants him to be, or does Trump mold the party into what he thinks it should be? I said before that, that my interest in Donald Trump at the beginning, and I'm talking about in 2015, when he introduces his candidacy, I mean, I knew who Trump was. I mean, I didn't watch the Apprentice, but I knew Trump. I mean, he was a real estate developer and a bit of a wild man, and, you know, he's outspoken and very self-promoting. So I'd heard all of those things. I knew all those things. But, but one moment in time when he gave a speech and he talked about immigration, trade, and China. And I remember going, like, okay, that's kind of how I feel. I don't know that I've ever read that in the National Review. I know I've not read it in the Wall Street Journal, but that's kind of how I feel when he said China cheats and they've taken our jobs and America, the, the, the um, you know, the, the upper crust in America is selling, you know, the working class out. Um, I mean, that's, that's not William Buckley. That's not George Will. That's not intellectual conservatism in the modern sense. That is a, I mean, it's a populism. It's a strain of populism that is so permeated the Republican Party. But my great fear was always that the GOP was going to convince itself that, that Trump voters are Republican voters. And they're not. They're Trump voters. Now, can they be converted? Can the Trump voter become a loyal and, and dependable tr- uh, Republican? Yes, absolutely. But not with Chris Christie flying the banner. Not with, excuse me, and let's be polite, not with Nikki Haley flying the banner. Because Nikki, in my opinion, is wrong on China. She's wrong on trade. She's wrong on intervention. And this party's got to decide, is it going to be more like Trump when it comes to intervention, trade, and China, or is it going to be more like the, the, uh, the big wigs who have stroked the big checks and gotten their way? I'll give you a, a kind of a recent example here. I read something in CNBC a couple of days back about Joe Biden trying to go after some of the patent rights of some of the big pharmaceutical companies. Basically, property rights is what he is. So, so big pharma is subsidized to some degree by, by the federal government. Um, a liberal Democrat, you would imagine, says, okay, government helped you create those um, you know, amazing medicines. It's not really your patent. It's kind of yours and ours together. So we're going to seize some of the rights to some of the patents, and the intent is to make drugs lesser. Well, William Buckley and George Will would have a fit I mean, there's no way. They'd say, no, good God, no. I mean, that's, that's an insult to the free market. The Trump voter would go, I don't know. I mean, maybe, you know, those, those damn pharmaceutical companies have charged us so much for, you know, medicines and, and drugs and what. And I get the fact that some of these big pharma companies research and develop a lot of drugs that don't work. I mean, there is no return on, you know, three years' worth of research to try and find a better medicine for diabetes. And we get to the end, and it doesn't work. I mean, I understand that's a... I mean, you know, you got to make it up somewhere else, and, and they do, and they have. But I just think the, the, the Republican voter in a traditional sense would just say, absolutely not. I don't want any part of the government seizing a certain percentage of the revenue of big pharmaceutical companies to lessen the price for the working class. But the Trump voter would go, hmm, hmm, I don't know. Maybe there's something there. 
And, um, and that's what we're trying to figure out. That's what we're saying grace over. That's what we're, <coughs> excuse me, concerned about and uncertain by. And, uh, and, and events like today will help establish a better understanding of what the traditional conservative believes, what the Trump voter believes, and where the common ground is. But, but, but Trump, to me, I mean, he's not a one-trick pony. But when Trump gave his summation of trade, immigration, China, I, I remember saying, okay, he's my guy. I mean, I, I, don't, I mean, I get the narcissism. I get the bombast. I don't know if he can win or not. But that message is going to be unbelievably relatable to the truck driver in Lake City, the construction worker in Pamplico, um, the farmer in Ohio. And it has been. And that's the, 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 the I don't know, the, the coalition that he's put together. And it's enormous. I mean, it is enormous, and it's, it's hard to figure out. I mean, it really, is he a Trump voter? Could be. Is he a Trump voter? Could be. Is he a Republican? I don't know if he cares much about, you know, tr- traditional conservatism or liberalism or big government or, or small government. He just feels like he's getting screwed. And there's a guy that say, well, here's why you've gotten screwed, and he believes that. So when you talk about big pharma, I just think there are going to be some conservatives, excuse me, some Trump voters <laughs> who are Republicans now. I mean, they're still trying to figure this thing out this thing out. But I think there are going to be a lot of Trump voters that say, I'm not, not publicly, but I'm kind of with Biden. I'm with Biden on this government intervention. Take a break. Back in a few. Welcome back to Wake Up Carolina. Hour number two on a Friday morning takes Mondays to make Fridays a different Friday morning. We're not at world headquarters dominating the media airways as only the Royal Rev, the radio and I can do. We're at the, um, at the Hilton at Kingston Plantation in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina for the second annual First in the South, let me get this right, the second annual First in the South Republican Action Conference, I think is, um, yep. I think I got that right. I think you got it right. Yeah, Fitzrack, Brick Bats, who's keeping up? I mean, it's, it's, one, <laughs> it's one or, or the other. Um, 843-661-0937 is, is our a, number. It's a full weekend of events, and we're just here for, you know, I guess the kickoff of day one. That's when they've invited us to, to do the show here on location. Here, here's what it is. Um, you know, I'm a big football fan. Here's what it is. This is strength training. I mean, this is the weight room. The cameras aren't on. Nobody's watching. Are you doing the work to win or not? And if you're not in a squat rack, if you're not under a bench press, you aren't doing the work it takes to win. And this is the work necessary to build political operations and apparatuses and engage, you know, a, um, what am I trying to say, a like-minded audience to commit them or convince them that this is worthy of your time. So, in essence, this is the weight room. I mean, this is, this is strength training at 8 o'clock on Saturday morning when no fan of the Gamecocks or Tigers know what you're doing. They imagine you're sleeping in, and some of the mediocrity does sleep in. Some of the mediocre players do sleep in. But the ones that want to be good and better and exceptional and, and excel, they are doing what it takes. This is kind of a conference where people gather on strategizing um, how do we win elections. I mean, this is the business of politics, the game of politics, the game of college football, the game of, of truck body manufacture, the game of radio. You and I are in a highly competitive market. We keep up with our numbers. You know we do. I ask you persistently, hey, what does this book look like? What does that book look like? Well, this is to make you more competitive in winning elections. And the only way to do it is, I mean, do you really believe as big a name as Trump is, there's no way he can do this himself. But there's just no way. As big a name as Obama is, those are the biggest two names in, in American politics today. There's no way you could do it yourself. And, I mean, I won't share names, but you, you know what I'm talking about, Rev. We have had trouble communicating with some campaigns. We've had uh, very fluid activity with other campaigns. 
That's building the machine. That, that's finding competent, dedicated people who want to win. And, I mean, I could call a campaign by name, one campaign that has underperformed. I'll just leave it there. I believe one of the reasons they've underperformed is not being as, as, as competent as they need to be, not taking care of things that need to, be, um, need to be taken care of. So this conference will help educate, inform, hopefully inspire some young people um, to get involved in, uh, in the world of politics. 843-661-0937 is our number. I think Russell Fry will be with us in just a little bit. And then we've got other sorts of guests lined up. You would know better than I who we think we have scheduled to appear. Well, and it just uh, the coincidence is, is that today is our normal Friday, F-R-Y-D-A-Y. And, uh, and Russell is participating in these events, and he will be here in person with us in just a few minutes. And then Drew McKissick, uh, who wasn't on with us yesterday in anticipation of today, will be uh, live in person with us at 8.05 this morning. And we'll do the best we can to pry some knowledge out of those guys about what they see coming around the bend um, today is what, December the 8th? Yeah, the day after the day that will live in infamy. Um, you got, I think, January 15th is the Iowa caucus. So we're five weeks out, somewhere thereabout from the Iowa caucus. And then you've got a New Hampshire primary, and then you've got a South Carolina uh, primary soon to follow. Uh, what is the lay of the land? Um, and that's the unusual part of a Republican primary. It's not, you know, people don't vote. On the, on the same day. I mean, the voters of Montana and Wyoming don't vote on the same day the voters of New Hampshire. Uh, we heard Evan Brown talk yesterday a little bit about the Iowa caucus. I mean, it's, a, it's kind of, I mean, to me, it's a different sort of way. I'm not sure it's the fairest way to, to, for someone to win the, um, the, the delegates, but it is what it is, and that's what we decided to do. I'd like to see us, I'll get with Drew here this morning and get his take on, is it the fairest way to pick a president? Because if you think about it, Trump is up with huge leads in, in a lot of states. But in some of these early states, his lead is a lot smaller. And momentum is a, I mean, we're sports fans. Momentum's a big deal. I mean, you've gone to Gamecock games and, and felt like, wow, you know, I'll give you an example. Um, Clemson was ahead of South Carolina, what, 16 to 7. And, it, I mean, the game just felt like, wow, it's hopeless. I mean, there's, we can't do anything. But I kept thinking to myself, okay, but a batted ball, a drop fumble, I mean, something stupid happens here, and momentum gets on your side, and anything can happen after that. So momentum's a big deal. If Trump wins Iowa, and, and Drew and some others may disagree with me, if Trump wins Iowa, to me it's over. I mean, it's just over. I don't see how you go to New Hampshire believing you can beat him there. But I did see a poll yesterday, Rev, that had Trump at about 39 and had, um, I think, DeSantis. No, Nikki was at about 25 or 6. I've not seen her that high. So, so in all honesty, what, what the polling says in New Hampshire, excuse me, what the polling says in Texas is going to be influenced by what happens in Iowa. Some candidate will lose some momentum. Some candidate will gain some momentum. There's no candidate in the Republican field that says, I'm in a better place than Donald Trump. I mean, that's just unrealistic. That's being dishonest. Fundamentally, uh, that's being, I mean, I understand you're selling your, yourself. You're, you're trying to convince supporters and donors and, and voters that you've got a chance to win. But, but I've never seen a primary. Uh, I'm not a, um, a student of politics, but I've never seen a primary where one candidate has as big a lead for as long a period of time. I mean, I've just not. I mean, you know, I was involved in the Giuliani 2008 campaign, and we had a lead. I mean, it was not a big lead, and it was not one we felt was sustainable. But we always said, okay, 
um, New Hampshire, Florida. I mean, we had some models that showed we were doing better in New Hampshire, better in Florida. But I don't know a state that Trump's trailing in. I mean, I don't know a single state that will vote on a president that Trump is trailing in. Now, now what does that mean? How much could Iowa influence what happens in South Carolina? I don't know. How much could New Hampshire influence what happens in South Carolina? Once again, I don't have any idea, but there will be momentum. And, and a lot of people believe that Haley and DeSantis are fighting for um, second place, kind of the, uh, the anti-Trump or never-Trump vote. Uh, we know that's out there. Um, Chris Christie will get out of the race and probably endorse Nikki, but that doesn't much matter. I mean, Christie doesn't bring a big following with him. DeSantis and Haley have um, kind of an interesting position they find themselves in. Um, I mean, I think personally, Trump and DeSantis is 60-40. Trump and Nikki 65-35. I mean, I'm not saying that's how it ends up. And, and, you know, some states are more Trumpy than others. Some states are a little more traditionally conservative uh, than others. But, um, but these, these early states will directly influence the momentum that candidates and campaigns have going into into some of the other states. 843-661-0937 is our number. And, um, and South Carolina is going to be a critical part of that. I mean, there, there's no doubt about it. As we leave um, Iowa, go to New Hampshire. Um, we don't, they don't call it first in the South for nothing. Yeah. And, and, I, and I believe this. I mean, you know, I think DeSantis, and, and I, I don't know their financial situations. I mean, I don't know how much money they have, cash on hand, what their burn rate has been. But, but I got to believe, here's what Nikki's got to ask herself. You ready? Nikki's got to ask herself if she's willing to come to South Carolina and lose by 20 points in her home state. And how devastating is that if she decides to do it again in 2028? I mean, I think fundamentally that is a question she has to pose to herself, her staff, her advisors, her consultants. Um, you know, if we go, to, if we go to, to Iowa and Trump underperforms, you go to New Hampshire, Trump underperforms, hmm, mm, okay, okay, maybe the polls were a little more friendly to Trump. Maybe there's more of a... Um, Trump fatigue syndrome out there than the polls detected or picked up. So let's say that Nikki and DeSantis overperform in Iowa, overperform in New Hampshire. Trump underperforms a little bit in both of those states. South Carolina becomes even more critical. Now, now I believe this, if Trump wins Iowa, Trump wins New Hampshire, if, if I'm giving Nikki advice, I'd say don't get embarrassed in your home state. I mean, don't, don't be the, you know, the, the recently elected governor, two-time governor. Don't be, because that could be devastating to the next time if she decides, you know, she wants to run again. And Nikki and DeSantis are young enough. I think the person who made probably the biggest mistake, and we're sitting close here to DeSantis for 24. I don't want to say it too loud, but then they throw a yard sign at me. But um, <laughs> I think he should have waited. Yeah, I think he should have waited. We've talked about that before. Yeah, I think he should have probably waited. But um, but it may be, maybe somebody talked him into and, and, and here's what happens behind the scenes. Some of these consultants are real good at telling you, no, this is your time. We've got some polling that shows X or polling that shows Y or polling that shows Z. And I would imagine when, when people went to see DeSantis and to convince him, you know, now's the time, don't wait. And he was in an awkward position. He would not have been the, the governor of Florida. So he's kind of on the outside looking in, um, so to speak. But unless something fundamentally changes, it looks to me like the best chance would have been the next time. Now, now, here's the interesting part, and here's how DeSantis, to me, can capitalize on this moment. And if I were in a room with him and he said, hey, what do you think I should do? I'd, I'd say, hey, let, let Iowa play out. Let New Hampshire play out. And then endorse Trump. 
you know, I don't know how much that matters because I don't think endorsements carry much weight anymore. I think people vote for who they want to, not who they're told to vote to vote for, especially in today's, you know, it's, it's almost like if you give the Republican primary voter a chance to do something he's told to do or not, they're going to do what they're not told to do. But, but it endears you a little bit toward the people who vote for Trump. It doesn't hurt you. Right. I mean, it doesn't hurt you. And, and I, I just think that's a, uh, that, that would be, I mean, it, he, he's, he's made a huge investment in Iowa. Uh, Christie's made a huge, but Christie's irrelevant. I mean, he's Christie's run because he didn't get a job he wanted. I don't know. I mean, that's, that's you know, it is what it is. But um, but if but if you if you leave Iowa, and 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 DeSantis is competitive, he's got to go to New Hampshire. But if you leave Iowa and he's not competitive, I think the quicker he decides to show show support. I'm not saying he has to endorse, but show support. And the guy's got to sleep at night. I mean, I don't know what he feels about Trump and America first. I don't have any idea what, what Ron DeSantis feels. We know what, I mean, we know what Chris Christie feels. I mean, he despises it. We know what Vivek Ramaswamy feels. He's 100% supportive of it. Yep. Um, DeSantis is one of those candidates that's tried to have it a little bit both ways. And I get it. I mean, that would be the, the best strategy. If you're not Trump you, you, and, and you don't want to alienate, you know, the, the people that are opposed to Trump, that's your recipe for performing well in some of these early primary states. But if we were having a national Republican presidential primary, I mean, you can you can call the dogs and piss on the fire because this one's over, but we're not. I mean, we're having Iowa, and you can build momentum. We're having New Hampshire. You can build some momentum. But I think the question that Governor Haley has to ask herself, am I going to risk, no matter how much I over – well, I mean, if she overperforms in Iowa and New Hampshire – She's got no choice but to come to South Carolina and, you know, give it her best go. But if she underperforms in either or Iowa, New Hampshire, to me it's hard to come to South Carolina and lose in your home state by a big margin. Losing to Trump by three or four points, four or five, six points, I mean, there's no embarrassment of that. You're running into a political, what am I trying, blunt instrument. I mean, just kind of the force du jour. In, in Republican politics today. But, but you know, th- those are some of the fundamentals that we're chewing on. There's some internal data, I would imagine, that either discourages DeSantis, discourages Nikki, encourages DeSantis, encourages um, Nikki. We'll never be privy to that data. Um, some of the pub- public polling is a little bit different than some of the internal pollings. Uh, they know their, their voters. They know where they are. They know the likelihood of getting them them to the polls and that was um I mean that, that's kind of how some of that some of that will play out but that's the uniqueness of the presidential primary process rev doesn't go to vote in montana the same day that i go to vote in south carolina the same day that john smith goes to vote in ohio the same day that you know that um that ann doe goes to vote in in florida it's a very unique set of circumstances and i've always felt and it goes back to what you talked about earlier momentum you yeah. can create that momentum from state to state to state well i mean if this if DeSantis were to overperform and he thinks he is but if he were to overperform, now, now listen to what I, guys, what I'm trying to do. This is called filler. I think it's over. I mean, I've said that. I'm on the record. I think it's over. I mean, I don't think there's any way to beat Trump in this primary. I don't think there's any chance somebody other than Donald Trump is going to win the nomination. Now, now will they try to incarcerate the nominee of the Republican Party? Of course they will. I mean, of course they will. It's hard to fathom that. But we're there. I mean, if Trump appears to be the nominee. Anything and everything is on the table. And I'm talking about the opposition, the insiders, the, the never-Trumpers, the cathedral, the Democrats, the media, academia. I mean, everybody's going to do all they can to make sure he does not get back in in the White House. Can that thwart the will of the voter? I don't know. 
I don't know. I mean, it'll be a crazy 2024 watching some of these indictments and hearings and charges and, you know, what, where does that lead? What sort of um, consequence is there to mishandling classified information, potentially obstructing justice? I don't have the answer um, to that, and I don't profess to have the answer, but, but I do know that if aside of him being incarcerated, He's going to be the Republican nominee, but I had maybe, 20 minutes to fill. And maybe even if he's yeah. incarcerated. Well, I mean, and, I, and I do think that um, in retrospect, and it's easy to look back and an armchair quarterback, but in retrospect, DeSantis looks like he would have been better off waiting until 2028. Now, I want to set the stage a little bit because you lowered your voice when you're talking about that. So we're, we're in – uh, Somebody hit me with a yard sign. Well, we're, we're in the meeting area here at the Hilton, and we're right outside what's called the Palisades Ballroom, and that's where they have the event. There's a big stage and lights and sound systems in the ballroom. That's where the speakers will speak over the course of today and tomorrow and Sunday. Uh, but outside, we're in the kind of the lobby outside of the ballroom. You picture hotel meeting room, and then there's a, a long hallway beside us, and a lot of the presidential campaigns have their tables and displays. And so you are, we're right next to the DeSantis for President uh, sign, so you kind of looked around to make sure. I don't want someone to hit me in the head with a yard sign. <laughs> I may jack one of those hats, too, though. Yeah, I'm going to get oh, me a Vivek hat. Yeah, I may right. get me a DeSantis <laughs> hat as well. My daughter's got this thing. I told you earlier, my daughter's got this thing of wearing things that you don't expect a kid her age to wear she comes to um she comes home from school a couple of weeks back with a a pink floyd sweatshirt that looked like it was 50 years old it was actually five days old <laughs> and probably cost a hundred dollars yeah. the, the 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 retro you know um, oh, yeah you know your generation's music sucks when you have to wear a pink floyd sweatshirt and every song on your itunes is from the 70s and 80s. Well, four, say, what does she know about Pink Floyd? Does Nothing. She, know? Nothing. I mean, I, I, she knows that sweatshirt is cool. Yeah. It's cool. And it is cool. And it looks, um, what do they call it, throwback or what, what, what am I yeah, trying re- to say? Retro. Here? Retro. Retro is the word I was looking for. Take a break. Back in a few. We're back. 843-661-0937 at the First in the South Republican Action Conference Hilton Hotel Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. When I see Fitzrack, I think of Fitz News. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking about Will Folks and that crazy website that he messes with everybody. He messed with me yeah. for a long time. Doesn't mess with me anymore, but I'm not in <laughs> politics any longer. Uh, but uh, Fitzrack is a um, – it's kind of an organizational – it's a um, – I think Drew says it's the South Carolina version of CPAC where a lot of conservative-minded people get together, uh, discuss election issues and realities, and try to encourage – and inspire others to get involved. Uh, we're waiting momentarily on Congressman Russell Fry. We think he'll be with us in the next few moments here. Uh, people are beginning their setups. We got a DeSantis and a Ramaswamy and a, and a Donald Trump. It's, it's a little bit like NASCAR. You know, when, when you go to a NASCAR race, Rev, and you walk down Souvenir Alley is what I call it, mm-hmm. there's a truck here with um, Dale Earnhardt Jr. memorabilia and shirts and hats and whatnot, and then there's a, a Bush and a Elliott, and a, you know what I mean. It's got um, it's got that feel to it. And um, DeSantis for President 2024, Vivek for victory, and uh, we, we think we'll have some of the uh, – may have some of the representatives. I don't know how many candidates are here today. Um, running for office is hard, man. I mean, it's a grind. It's not manual labor. It's not steel-toed boots. It's not <laughs> but, dungarees. But did you used to come to events like I this when you were running? Million. I came to a million. And, and you know, the beauty and, and disadvantage I had was being an unknown. I mean, there's some beauty in not – and, and not being known. I mean, you know, you've not, you've not given people the opportunity not to like you yet. 
So, yeah, you know, uh, I did a lot of this when I ran. When I ran for lieutenant governor, enjoyed some of it, didn't enjoy as much. Uh, some of the others, Revs, had to bail on me to try and uh, communicate with the Fry team to make sure we get Russell in here um, with us. But but I read last night, and I knew I probably would, in a reflective sort of way, um, the beginning of the Republican Party, it kind of derives from um, the, the, the Thomas Jefferson mindset and, uh, and he wrote it so eloquently, Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Happiness, and the Jeffersonian uh, Democratic Republican Party and the Federalists, those were kind of the two active political parties. I mean, we've heard the great story, and if you know anything about American history, uh, the first 50 or 60 years was probably the squabble between uh, the Jeffersonians who wanted a, um, a less influential central planner, the, uh, the Hamiltons, the Hamil. Tonians who were more inclined to be supportive of, you know, a bigger, a bigger central planner, more, um, more, I don't know, federal government, more influence from the federal government. But, um, but obviously the, the Republican Party has had its evolution. It's had its ebbs and flows, its gyrations, its, um, its changing of what it believes in. But if you go back to the, in the beginning, in Genesis, in the beginning, uh, there was Thomas Jefferson and Jefferson opined. And, and, and wrote, wrote very eloquently. You didn't believe me yesterday when I told you my Jefferson story. Rev and I were together late <laughs> yeah. yesterday, yep. and, uh, and we were talking about Jefferson and um, talking about the, um, the National Library. I don't know what it's called at the time, but the National Library burned. I think the British may have burned it in, in the early 1800s. And um, Jefferson needed money. I mean, he, you know, Jefferson was aristocratic, and he was, I mean, he had a plantation, slaves and all this, but, I mean, he, he, was, not, he was not very wise with his funds. He just <laughs> didn't do a real good job at money management. Um, probably too damn smart for his own good, to be honest with you. But, but anyway, um, they needed books. Some of the National Library had been burned by the British. They needed to replace the books, and Jefferson needed money, sold his private collection of somewhere in excess of 26,000 books. And I told Rev, he probably wrote half of the books that, right. that he sold to the National. That's incredible. So, so the librarian, I mean, that's probably not what it's called back in the The librarian comes and says, hey, you know, you know, the books Jefferson gave us, the, the building isn't big enough. I mean, he, he had more books than we've got. I mean, the private guy had more books than, than we had. And that kind of became the National Archives. I mean, the, the, the piece of property in Washington that houses some of the original Constitution, some of the letters between Jefferson and Adams. Uh, and I've told you, I get a little bit choked up when I see those those communications between oh, yeah. uh, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson and how important they were at the beginning. Well, I mean, Jefferson basically created the Democratic-Republican Party. And you had the Federalists and the Democratic-Republicans, and out of that came the Jeffersonian mindset. Um, Lincoln famously said, I've never had a political fault that was not born at the feet of Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson influenced um, Lincoln, believe it or not. You ready? Lincoln was a Republican uh, president who signed the Declaration, excuse me, the Emancipation Proclamation. And, um, and here we are, uh, how many years later? 200 and, uh, yeah, about that many. Uh, 200 and <laughs> some odd years later, uh, talking about Republican politics in one of the Republican hotbeds in all of South Carolina. When I ran statewide, I remember thinking to myself, because I didn't know. Uh, Russell Fry was actually, Russell's with Congressman Russell Fry's with us. Good morning, sir. Good morning. How are you? So when I ran, you were kind of sort of an activist in the surf side, if I'm not mistaken, Republican Party. Yeah, I was, uh, was, you, was it 2010, is yeah. that right? Yeah. So I was in law school, uh, was, was certainly involved just from a grassroots, like let's go knock on some doors and, you know, help people 
help people out. So, I mean, I, I remember being in Charleston when the Tea Party wave really kicked off and they had that incredible rally on Market, I think it was Market, or East Bay Street, right by the old market. I was there. And that was just, I mean, thousands people of people. dressed like Paul Revere. Yeah. And, I mean, it was, it was crazy. <laughs> wow. I mean, it was like Woodstock. I mean, it was like Woodstock for politics. So what inspired you to be a Republican? Well, a couple things. I mean, we grew up kind of talking politics around the dinner table, but we didn't grow up with with a lot. And and my both of my parents were were small business owners, and and just kind of seeing their struggle, like hard work, determination. Like if you're going to make it in this world, it's not going to be because somebody hands you something and and then you just get gifted this incredible opportunity. Like you better bust your butt to get there. And if you don't, well, then guess what? You're not going to make it. And and I think from that is like just classic conservatism and, and I'm a child of 9-11 I mean I was in high school when 9-11 happened and and uh, just really that really that rally around the flag effect of of you know this is a, this is our country and we're going to protect it and, and we are Americans and our way of life is a threat to, uh, to a lot of people around the world I think uh, both of those kind of deeply shaped uh, me just as a young kid so 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 Russell um we're here celebrating the Republican Party, trying to create, I don't know, activists within to make sure we're successful in elections. Is election integrity still an important issue? I had a couple of folks stop by a minute ago talking about election security, election protection. We're going to do things here. But are we confident that, that similar groups in Pennsylvania, in Ohio, in Michigan, in Wisconsin, in Nevada, in Arizona, you know the states as well as I yeah. do. Well, how confident are we that that people who are in charge of the process in those states are doing what we hope they're doing to give Republicans a fairer chance. What, I, what, I'm, what I'm confident in right now is, is not of the people who run it, right? Uh, people are fallible, and even on their best days, they mess up. What I am confident in is the focus of the party, of the conservative movement right now, is we're going to be watching. We're going to have poll watchers and precinct managers and people watching to in, in a level that they did not in 2020. And, and I think that helps is, is people are going to do the right thing uh, when they know that somebody is watching over their shoulder. Plus, I think just from a, from a legal standpoint, you've seen a ton of states, Georgia, South Carolina, I mean, even us as, as secure as we are, take really good steps to tighten uh, things up to make sure. Uh, now, I wish more states would jump into that, but uh, I think you've seen a lot of states lead. And so I think uh, in, in many ways, um, the Republican Party, the conservative movement, is going to be a lot better prepared to watch what is going on than they were in 2020. Can you hang around a few more moments? Absolutely. We've got to take a break here. Right, Rev? Let's take a break. Come back. Congressman Russell Fry from Horry County is with us. We'll be back in just a few moments. I'm not reluctant, and I'm not a hero. How about that? How about that? How about that for that? <laughs> well, I know you're not reluctant I mean, Josh to Josh is behind that. I mean, I know what Josh does. He's behind all that. The, 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 um, the, the, the heavy sarcastic or the heavy sarcasm is uh, is only for me. It, nobody else can use sarcasm except me okay. in this in this field <laughs> of the radio bridge. Congressman Russell Fry is with us. We're at the um, the Fitch Rack First in the South Republican Action Conference at the Hilton Hotel, Kingston Plantation, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Um, thank you for hanging around, um, Congressman. So, so I want to ask you this, and I'm not saying, hey, um, who's your favorite or who's not. I, I don't know that I've ever seen a primary where one candidate has had as big a lead for as long a period of time as Donald Trump has. But you would agree, this is the funky way we do this. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've got a caucus in Iowa, and then we go to New Hampshire, and then we come to South Carolina. Handicap the primary as you see it today. Well, I think it's the same as it has been uh, 
a year ago and several hundred million dollars already spent for some of these candidates. It is the exact same. Donald Trump is doing well. Um, he's doing better than he was a year ago. He's the only candidate really kind of gaining any measurable traction. Uh, one of the biggest Achilles heels or maybe uh, arguments against his candidacy at one point uh, was that he could not win head to head against Joe Biden. But the polling, you've seen the polling just as much as I have, increasingly shows Donald Trump doing well. And not only just doing well against Biden, but doing better than the other candidates themselves. And so I think, I mean, the base is there. They are ready for Donald Trump to be the nominee. They're ready for Donald Trump to be the president again. And I don't think, I don't think any amount of money changes it. This is a primary in name only uh, because Donald Trump is going to win in Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina. And then after that, I think it's over. Russell, why have people we talked about when I ran in 2010, you were involved in the Republican Party. That would have been what would I call modern conservatism I mean, in, in the traditional sense. I'm not sure we're dealing with that today. I mean, we, we've got kind of a, um, I mean, the America first sentiment is kind of a pro-worker, pro-family, pro-America. Let's put America back at the front of the line. Um, does that make your life easier, more complicated? How do you deal with voters who have a different sentiment today than they did in 2010 when it was about the George Will William Buckley model of conservatism? Well, I think I think it's actually in a healthy way. Um, look, a, a frustration of mine, um, even in 2010, just based on how I grew up, was that there wasn't a lot of talk about the middle class. And maybe talk, but not action. And now you have a situation where conservatism has really gravitated. I like the, the populist, maybe not true populism, but a little bit of infusion of it is healthy for the party because you have middle class Americans who are waking up and saying, what is going on? Working families. Uh, and the policy is kind of structured around that. I think that's a good thing for the conservative movement in the end. And we've had this back and forth and debate and, and parties obviously change over time. I think the Republican Party has changed for the better by having a little bit of this in there, this little blue collar work ethic type of attitude. Um, and you're seeing that reflective in state legislatures, in, in the U.S. Congress, and it's, it's, it's ever changing, but it's in a good way. The one thing that you did when you got to Washington, and I don't know how you did this, maybe you can tell me, you drew some good assignments. I mean, you got on some real good com um, committees. You've been at the center of some of these political issues that people care deeply about. Um, Talk about those, and I'm talking about the, the, the Biden affairs. I'm talking about the border security. I mean, if you don't mind, what, what is it that excites you about going to Washington every week? Well, I, I think one, I mean, one, I think that on, on messaging and on, on offense, um, we're doing, you know, defense, we're there. We had the Republicans control, so they're not running things through. But on offense, we are winning on the border. Polling is increasingly souring on this president, and what and what we have done is to highlight that and to to morph it into actual policy that will secure the border. We've we've passed that. We months ago we sent that to the Senate, but building the case brick by brick that this is this is a a lack of completion of the wall. This is a lack of understanding and, and funding of true border security. This is a this is a, a huge failure of this administration when they when they twisted the law in a multitude of different directions to grant people asylum and to give benefits. People are with us. This is Republicans, Democrats, independents. They see it every day. You have New York City mayors, Connecticut governors all across the spectrum who are going, we can't afford these migrants. And so I love the work that we do in judiciary. And the Biden stuff is interesting, too, because, again, I put on my legal hat. 
And and you you never want to charge somebody with a crime and convict the next day. That's not what we do uh, ever in this country. That's not who we are. And, but you cross every T, you dot every I, you get all the evidence, and if the facts are there, the facts are there. If they're not there, then we just, you know, then, then it's over. But every single week that has gone by since we've been up there and all the subpoenas and all the hearings and all the things that we've done, it has gotten worse for this president. I mean, you have a situation here where you're talking about corruption at its highest level. You have countries that have funded this family. And what is owed? What, is, what was produced? What were the widgets that were created? What were the services that were rendered and why? And, 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 and what, I'm, what I'm seeing is this administration be very hesitant, very reticent about giving the information out, which tells me even more. Where there is smoke, there is certainly fire. And on oversight, it's all been about the transactions themselves. What did Hunter do? Did money facilitate and flow to, to Joe Biden himself, which it did? Uh, and then in judiciary, it's been kind of the cover-up. These agencies that have refused to let investigators go talk to the president's family, refused to say the president's name, refused to grant access or, or give the green light to go search for tax records in a storage facility where you know. And these were all things that were proper protocol. Uh, and so we've got Leslie Wolf, who just came in, I think, yesterday. Um, I was already on the way back home, but she came in for a, a deposition. She was at the center of this. She was actually going to give away the farm on, on a plea deal uh, her original plea deal was worse than what ultimately came out, which was still a sweetheart deal. But why is a prosecutor acting like a defense attorney? I don't understand that. And so I love the work that we're in, and it could not have, maybe it was by happenstance or maybe it just was meant to be, but uh, the, the things that we have done in these two committees, they've been at the epicenter, as you talked about, of, of everything that is going on in the House right now. We have a new speaker. Um, we found out yesterday or the day before, you probably knew a little earlier than we did, but Kevin McCarthy is not going to seek re-election. What, what has that transition been like, going from McCarthy to Johnson? I think the trans. I mean, look, it's, it's difficult. Uh, Speaker Johnson said at conference the other day, and, and I, uh, it was very true. He said, you know, we, we achieved liftoff in a plane that we were still assembling uh, and are still continuing to assemble. You know, he has to make hires and hire people and, you know, put a plan together uh, in the middle of doing it. Uh, and so, you know, it's been a little rocky. I think we've had some, uh, this past week was, I would say, relatively easy. Had some good bills that were easier lifts, if you will. Uh, and so kind of getting back to the, you know, the regular order, I think, is his, his objective. But you know where his heart's at. Uh, you know where his mind's at. And I think that's why people instinctively trust him. His, his voting record is, is incredible. Uh, and it's going to be, you know, look, we've got a two-seat margin right now. It's going to be very difficult to govern and to, to kind of navigate that water. But uh, so far, uh, he's doing a relatively good job. Is it fair to say that he's more of an America firster than McCarthy was? I mean, that, that would have been my observation, not, not critical of Kevin. And I get it. Everybody believes what they believe and have to go back at home and represent their district. It, I would imagine it's easier for you to be America firster than it was for Kevin McCarthy. But, but do you sense that this speaker is more supportive and believing in America first? I, I think so. I think naturally, if you look at his voting record and his history and the things that he did in, in the Judiciary Committee, uh, he is there. And I think he's incredibly smart. He's, he's naturally more inclined to be an America firster than Kevin, who, you know, had seen the, the sea change, had seen the, the, the framework of, of Republican governance change dramatically. And he's doing the best. He, I mean, uh, you know, McCarthy, once you're at the mountaintop and you get replaced from being on the mountaintop, it's hard to sit back in the, uh, it's hard to be 
uh, just a, a normal you know, member of the, of the House. Why does this event matter? And then I'll let you get out of here. Why does it this matter way? to have the event we're having this weekend here in Myrtle Beach? Well, look, I think we win on issues. And I think uh, people, people might not trust the Republican Party. If you, add, if you look at the polling, that's the case. But they trust Republican issues. They trust the conservative uh, alternative to what is going on right now. And so I think focusing on the issues, getting back to governing uh, that makes sense, that work for the American people, that make this country function properly, that's where we go. And that's why this action conference, this issues-based action conference is so cool. Plus, you know, it's, it's Myrtle Beach. It's kind of cold, but it's, uh, you've got a lot of people who are going to be coming through here. The excitement. People are ready for next year. They're ready to turn the clock into 2024 um, and sweep Republicans back into power to get, re- get away from some of this Biden, Biden inflation, Bidenomics, Biden disaster. I mean, it's just a, it's, a, it's an unmitigated disaster, this president. So people are a little optimistic about 2024 right now. Good deal, my man. Hey, uh, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. I mean, Thank you. Congressman Russell Fry, we'll take a break. We'll be back in just a couple of moments. See, Rev, you got to be, you got to be, you got to be patient. You got to be strategic. You got to build relationships. Next thing you know, you're inside the building. Then you can infiltrate. <laughs> then, then, then you can manipulate. Well, then you the can distort. Then, yeah, there. See, now you're learning. <laughs> okay. When, when I brought you along, you were a checker player. Oh yeah. Now, now you're a chess player, not a 4D chess player. No. But but you're a, you're a chess player <laughs> nonetheless. Um, we are at the um, the first in the South Republican Action Conference. Um, when I see Fitz Rack, I think of Fitz News, and I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, he ain't talking D- about me. Thing. He ain't talking Dip. about me anymore. Talking about <laughs> Will's talking about somebody else now. But this is um this is an event that I think um I creates the infrastructure necessary to successfully uh, win elections. And Drew McKissick, SCG GOP chairman and co-chair of the National Party, is kind enough to join us this morning, face to face, not on the phone as usual yes, on a Thursday morning. Good morning, sir. How are you? I am doing well this morning. How are y'all? So, so, so walk me through logistically mm-hmm. how we get to this morning. What, what happens in the in the Republican world mm-hmm. that leads you to believe and others to believe this um, convention mm-hmm. is important? Uh, well first thing to me always goes back to what's our purpose as a party. I mean, our job is to put together the infrastructure and do the mechanics to win campaigns. Uh, so first thing you need, you need people. And the second thing you need is training. Okay. Uh, so this is geared around uh, using, one, the fact that we're in an off year, two, the fact that we've got people who are running for president now, which are going to attract attention, bring people together. Uh, so in the process, we can do training on grassroots organization, training on organizational fundraising, you know, for the local groups and candidates and so forth, and things that are useful to candidates, things that are useful to people who need to work for candidates and so forth. So, you know, if you don't have um, uh, uh, you know, the skills, and it doesn't matter how many people you have in many cases. So you want to bring the people together and you want to do the training, and this is the time to do it or to start doing it. And we'll do this um, in different venues and different size gatherings, probably through summer of next year, you know, before we get into the fall campaign here in South Carolina. Uh, you know, it, for me, again, everything is always revolved around, and I try to just relentlessly focus on fundamentals. There's a lot of things going on out there that obviously we're rightly upset about, things we'd like to change. You talk about it every day. I know on the radio, I do too. Uh, but at the end of the day, if it doesn't involve organization, and the training and everything that goes with that, if it doesn't involve communicating our message, and if it doesn't involve raising the money to make number one and number two possible, we're not doing the fundamentals. Those are things we have to do first to enable us to win the campaigns, to have an impact on those things that we get upset about. Uh, 
If we don't do that, then we'll just be upset all the time. Drew, George Soros has been famous for involving himself in elections. Yeah. Um, he's whipped mm-hmm. us in some places. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking about us who believe in kind of a right of center form of government, yeah. less government, uh, lower taxes. Elon Musk says that what, what Soros understands better than most is the arbitrage of investing in local elections. Mm-hmm. You get excited about presidential races. I do. We all do get excited about the bright lights. But, but the local offices right. are, are genuinely critical to how we advance a, a form of government. Mm-hmm. How do we convince people of that? Look, it's, it's a constant uh, process because we all swim in national media every day. You know, you and I probably know more about what's going on in the White House than we do on our own local school board. And we're all guilty of that because, again, we're bombarded with it every day, 24-7, cable networks. They're not talking about school boards or county council business and millage rates and blah, blah, blah. They're talking about what's going on in D.C. You know, it's, everything's D.C.-centric. So the problem is we constantly have to cut through that clutter and try to convince people and work with people and get them acclimated to the fact of the importance of local races, one, because you pay taxes. How much of your tax bill is local versus federal or state? You know? So, number one, you're, you're, you're paying it whether you want to or not. Are you having an impact on it? And the other thing is uh, what I call um, the farm team. I mean, the people who are serving in Congress right now or governors, um, et cetera, started somewhere. They were probably on a school board somewhere, a county council, a city council, and so forth. And then maybe they ran for the state house and state senate, and then maybe they ran for Congress. So if you want better folks serving at the higher levels of government, you need to also have a focus on the lower levels. Any good baseball team has a good farm system. So we're recruiting good players, good people, bringing them in, training them, getting, pushing them up the ladder, finding what I would call those, those star-quality candidates but who also have a track record of representing conservative values at the local level. And then also he understands uh, leverage because you have low turnout, and a little bit of money and a little bit of training like we're doing here this weekend goes a long way in a race for a school board or a city council or county council seat, a long way. Uh, and because so many people ignore it, it can have that much of a bigger impact. Uh, you know, I mean, apathy is terrible, especially when it's our people who are being apathetic. Apathy works for us if the other side's being apathetic. So our job, you know, we can't deal with them. We're not responsible for what they do. If we get our folks engaged and we get them trained, get them some knowledge, and help them learn how to raise some money, doesn't have to be big money, you know, for a local race, you can have an outsized impact. I mean, he understands, you know, a million-dollar check at his level goes a whole lot further in trying to win some school boards or local solicitor races than it does in a congressional race any day and twice on Sunday. So you talked about candidate recruitment. I've, I mean, I, I, I kind of came from nowhere when I ran for office, registered to vote when I was 40 years old, ran for county council, ended up winning a statewide seat. Mm-hmm. But, but I can remember my reluctance being, man, I don't know if I want to put myself out there. Yeah. I mean, I, I, think yeah. I'm, I think I'm smart enough. I think I understand it enough. I think I work hard enough at it. But I don't yeah. know that I want, you know, I don't know right. that I want my life lived in the public. What do you tell someone who is competent, qualified, ready, mm-hmm. able, and, but, but not quite willing because of that? Well, one thing. Is that you, the case? I mean, yeah, for, yes. is that the case? Yes, yes. Uh, one thing I never do is try to, you know, mislead someone who's thinking about being a candidate. Uh, as a state chairman, you want to be direct with them about the district they're running for, you know, what the numbers look like, you know, not sugarcoating it, to what a campaign is going to look like, what are those fundamentals that you need to do. Some people don't mind doing them. Some people are good at doing them. Some people you got to drag kicking and screaming to do them because they'd rather do other stuff. 
and also what it's going to be like in terms of, you know, demands on your personal time, your personal life, how much it might impact your personal life, your family. I mean, we, we, the age of social media now, I mean, people will say things online about you they wouldn't say about you in church, you know, and about your family in some cases. And it can get that way. And so that does make it more difficult to find someone who's willing to put up with the BS, you know, in order to actually go and have an impact on those things that they care about. So, again, another big role that we try to serve from the party perspective is help prepare them for that, make sure that they know this is what we're going to be dealing with. We want to be here as a party to help you when it comes to pushing back on messaging, helping advance your message, uh, help make sure that people who are working for you know how to do that as effectively as possible, as effectively as we can train them to do. Uh, because it's, it's a challenge. I mean, it's, it's a sacrifice. And, and look, I, every single candidate who files for office in South Carolina since I first got elected chairman, when filing day is over, every single one of them gets a handwritten personal thank you note from me for filing because I understand what they're doing. They're putting themselves and their families out there and on the line, and it matters. Let, let, let's go to where we are today because you have an interesting perspective, and I have a, a – I mean, my, mine is skewed by, you know, the radio show and talking to a group of people every morning who have certain – they're more intense about how they feel about sure. about politics. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you, you know this. We've had gyrations and and swings and ebbs and flows in the party. Mm -hmm. um, when Trump first said how he felt mm -hmm. about China trade and immigration, that that was something I could sink my teeth into. Mm -hmm. I could laugh. I was a Republican because yeah. I believed in the principles, but I felt that the Republicans maybe have not quite solidified themselves in, in a few areas like that. Correct. Here's my concern, Drew, and, and, you know, maybe I'm wrong. I'm concerned that we believe already that Trump voters are Republican voters. I think Trump voters are a work in progress, mm -hmm. and we've got to convince them to become Republican voters. Is, is there some... Is, yeah, is there some credence to my analysis? To, to some degree, yeah. And, and here's, here's the thing, and we're all guilty of this, whether it's, you know, guys like us sitting around talking, folks even in the mainstream media, you know, we are all subject to pigeonholing people. Correct. Yeah, because it just makes the conversations easier sometimes when we're boxing people. But the simple fact is you've got a lot of folks who check a lot of different boxes. You know, they're not just, let's say, in the, say for instance, a good example, uh, that Ted Cruz found out back in uh, 15 and 16 when he was running in that primary and Trump was in. You had 16 other candidates, you know, that were hitting at each other. And, you know, it was assumed, well, you know, the religious conservative voters are going to go to Ted Cruz. And Ted Cruz's campaign got out there and they recruited a whole bunch of pastors and so forth and had them on board. What they found out was the pastors were going to vote for Cruz, but the folks sitting in the pews were voting for Donald Trump. Well, and so they're scratching their head and trying to figure this out. Well, why? Because those folks who care, they're religious, social conservatives who care about those issues, also cared about immigration, also cared about trade, factories have been closed down, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, you can go through the list. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's not that they're exclusively in one box or another. Now, you do have a lot of new people, though, who did come to the party because of, let's say, immigration and trade, if we want to just pick those issues. And they helped expand the Republican coalition. Now, it didn't mean those people didn't also care about, you know, taxes and, you know, whatever. But it's the degree to which they're focused on one issue or another. We can sit here right now with a copy of our platform and probably agree on 95% of every issue position that's in there. We disagree probably over the priority we put on different things because, and, and that's because of life. You know, the last tax bill I got, the last thing I saw on TV that made me mad, the last school board meeting I went to or whatever it might be. So, you know, there is some overgeneralization and pigeonholing of people, and there is some element of new people who did come in. What do we do about the, 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 the historic Republican who refuses to support, not Trump, but America first? 
I mean, yeah, is there yeah. data that, or, or once again, am I making too much of something? There's an element of those, and I would say though they are predominantly, uh, and I, I think I can say this, uh, clustered around you know what we would call say, the D.C. Beltway Republican type crowd. These are the ones who you know they know I, how I, to get on talk well, shows. Well, well, 1980, you know, going forward, Reagan comes in, Reagan Revolution, make a bunch of changes and so forth, and then you know after that, H.W. Uh, Bush comes in. And from about, you know, the early to mid-90s and going forward, that group, with a lot of the policy groups that go with them, began to move further and further away from where the core of the party was on those key issues we just talked about, immigration, trade, things that relate to those issues. And they, you know, it's kind of like the, the rubber band kept stretching and they kept going this way, and then in 16, that rubber band snapped back because the base of the party had not moved on those issues. And, you know, so... Uh, they do know how to get themselves on TV, no doubt about it. Uh, and that's fine. You know, you can. We'll see how many of them there are. <laughs> let, let, can we take a break? Let, let's take a break. Can you hang around one, yeah, more, one more second? Drew McKissick, SCGOP chairman, is with us. We're going to take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. Welcome back at Fitzrack. We're at a Hilton property in downtown downtown Myrtle Beach. We're in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, Kingston Plantation, Hilton. Uh, Drew McKissick, SCGOP chairman, is with us. What is Fitzrack? It is the first in the South Republican Action, action Conference, conference to try and prepare people for the inevitable elections that are just around around the corner. Drew, I want to get your take because you mm-hmm. could you could you could you would have more credibility on this issue than I would with my listeners. <laughs> when, when 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 the average. Seinfeld watcher uh-huh. knows there's an election and says, well, I mean, Trump's got 60% of the vote. That's over. Why are we even engaging? Why are we worried uh-huh. about anything? Right. But, but the primaries are different. Sure. I mean, you've got a caucus in Iowa. Mm-hmm. Then you've got a primary in New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. Then you've got a primary in caucus walk, in Nevada. Yeah, yeah caucus in Nevada. Mm-hmm. So walk me through why mm-hmm. a candidate at 60 and another candidate mm-hmm. at 20 mm-hmm. doesn't reflect a real 40% disadvantage or advantage for the other. Right, because uh, just as with uh, presidential elections in the fall, every it's a state-by-state process, okay? Every state stands into itself for electors in the fall and November of next year. But in the primary process, the nomination process, better way to put it, for the parties, uh, different in every state, different set of rules in every state. So a national poll doesn't matter as much as a state poll matters, okay? Uh, and in, say, the sense of Iowa uh, and Nevada, where they have caucuses, not primaries, it matters in terms of not just what the poll says, but who actually shows up to a caucus meeting. So it's not them going in and checking a box and a ballot. You know, in those states, you, you got a couple hours of a meeting to attend and sit there and argue with one another about who ought to win, the delegates from your precinct and so forth. Uh, and so it's different in every state. The rules are different in every state. Um, you know, South Carolina is what's known as a winner-take-all state. You get one more vote than anybody else, you win all the delegates from South Carolina. Uh, the other three states, early states, are proportional. Um, the By rule, between March 1st and March 15th, any other states that have primaries or caucuses have to be proportional. After March 15th, they can be winner-take-all. Uh, so we have the exception in that sense. Uh, so, you know, it, it affects candidate strategies in terms of where they'll go, why they'll go there, how much money and resources they'll spend, depending on the rules of that particular state. You know, how many delegates get bound to me if I win that state? Or are they bound to me on one ballot or two ballots at a national convention? All the stuff affects the, you know, the, uh, the, <clears throat> the, 
decision-making in terms of targeting where they spend time and resources. Uh, so, you know, the, the average number of people, say, who attend caucuses in, in, in Iowa, I think it was maybe you know, 50,000 people or something like that statewide. Um, you know, versus here in South Carolina for the primary, we'll have three-quarters of a million people are going to vote in our primary here. Uh, so it's just different, and it affects their decision-making. But we will, the majority of elections will have been held by March. Is that fair so, to say? Well, no, so, well, the majority of the delegates. Okay. So the way, if you're looking at uh, each month as a box, if you will, uh, we've got our early caucuses and primaries, those four we just referenced in January February. Nobody else can go before March 1st. From March 1st until the end of March, just in the month of March alone, 66% of all the delegates get elected. Now, when you add those to what got elected in January and February, you're at about 70% by the end of March. Uh, and then others in April and May, uh, you know, smaller states, some bigger states. But California is going on Super Tuesday. That hadn't happened before. That's 156 delegates. And that expedites California. the process quicker. It makes it move a lot faster. And, it, and it, puts, it puts strain on campaigns to be in and spend money in multiple states at one time versus where you have the one state at a time merry-go-round, you know, Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina. Um, so that's why they put so much emphasis on those early states, because they want to make a good showing, because they know, you know, after this is over, i got to go everywhere. i got to raise money to be everywhere. <clears throat> and uh, getting that boost here, I mean, you know, you've been around, you've watched politics in South Carolina. We are the graveyard of presidential campaigns. No question. Uh, and we are the booster rocket to somebody's presidential campaign. Our primary is 10 days before Super Tuesday, which means you win here. There's nothing else happening before Super Tuesday states. You do good here. It's a big boost to your campaign. It did it the first time we held it for Ronald Reagan back in 1980 to beat John Connolly, and it's done it every time except one since then. Newt Gingrich is the only one who ever won here and did not win the Republican nomination. So let's play a hypothetical and, and put your t take your SCGOP chair hat off for a second, put your national um, co-chair hat on, so if we get to March and we have clarity and things play out as we anticipate, nobody knows and anything can happen. I mean, there's no question about that. But let's hypothetically say Trump wraps up the nomination by the end of March. What is the RNC's responsibility while Trump is being charged with crimes and in courts? And I mean, he's your nominee by then. Well, so he's your guy. Well, but, but do you have a responsibility to help defend him? The problem is, well, in terms of rules, and to some degree, even in terms of the law, uh, there's only so much that the party can do until he is officially the nominee, or anybody is officially the nominee. So we don't nominate, we don't, we don't officially have a nominee until the convention at the end of July. Okay, so even if you so have, you potentially got from March until July that well, you're you, somewhat in limbo. Yes, and, and it's usually it's what we call um, when you have what we would refer to as a presumptive nominee. So let's say mathematically you're there. But, you know, Wyoming still hadn't voted yet, et cetera, et cetera, whoever it may be. So, you know, there are certain things that we would do with that person in terms of uh, staffing at the RNC. You know, hey, okay, this person from my campaign, I'd like them to come in here and help with the political department or this or whatever. You have some things like that that work behind the scenes, uh, some other cooperation that you can do. Um, but, you know, you still have to be careful of not crossing legal lines because federal campaign law exists to make criminals out of anybody who gets involved in politics. Trust me. Uh, you don't do it without the benefit of lawyers. Uh, and we got a lot of them just for that reason. And the campaigns do. Uh, so there's an element of more cooperation, but you can't cross those lines until 
you know, the gavel comes down at that convention, and he is the nominee. So what concerns you? I mean, I'm asking you to be speculative here, but what, what concerns you as a, as a national co-chair, Trump's the nominee, we have all these legalities. I mean, it's a witch hunt as far as I'm concerned, but it's real, and it's got to be dealt with in some way, shape, or form. Sure. Is there anything out there that concerns you more than some of the others? No, I think it all just, to, to be honest with you, I think it all just kind of blends together. It becomes uh, the campaign? In a lot of ways, it does. And, and you know, the campaign, uh, you know, to point out the abuse of the system becomes an aspect of the campaign. You know, and it becomes part of the messaging, you know, I'm sure, of the campaign. It, it has, for his campaign so far here throughout the uh, nomination process so far. Um, and, you know, I would say, you know, uh, it's it's... Obviously, it soaks up a lot of media attention, maybe to the chagrin of other candidates who would like to get more attention. I mean, it's just, it's just the way it works. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, the old saying, you know, when life gives you lemons, you make lemonade. So I would expect that there would be an effort to make lemonade out of that. You've maintained that you believe under no circumstances Robert Kennedy hurt Donald Trump as much as he does Joe Biden. At the end of the day. But I, he's I a wild card. You would accept yeah. that. I mean, he's a different sort of third-party candidate. He, yes. Uh, I mean, he's a Democrat who's not been allowed to play in their primaries. So he's a disaffected Democrat in that sense. Named Kennedy. Yes. Imagine that. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's kind of, well, remember what happened to uh, um, uh, Senator Ken, Ed, Ted Kennedy back in 1980 when he tried to run against Jimmy Carter. Uh, but he actually got to go through the primaries. In this case, they just shut the door on the primaries to him, basically. Uh I mean, but, you know, when it's all said and done, those issues that have given him a measure of popularity, and I would say even maybe a little bit of populist popularity, have to do with COVID, vaccines, and other things like that, where there is a lot of commonality with populists on those issues. But he is still a doctrinaire liberal on the multitude of other issues that nobody's talking about right now. And Democrats haven't been charging him with, you're, being, you're liberal on this issue, because they're all liberal on this issue. So those issues haven't been talked about, is my point. So if you get in a general election campaign, those things come out, that's not going to be attractive to conservatives. It's going to take more out of Joe Biden's hide than it would for us, definitely. Let's, um, last question. I want you to work this, or help me work through this. You're helping me prepare for next week's radio shows. So, so the good old boy in, the good old boy in Pamplico comes up to me because he knows I played the game at some point in my life, and he says, they stole it in 20, they're going to steal it again in 24. Uh -huh. what, what, what do you tell that guy? What, when he uh -huh. believes, and you're not going to convince him otherwise, uh -huh. something happened in Pennsylvania, something happened in Georgia, something happened mm -hmm. in Michigan, yeah. something happened in Arizona, or are, are, are we – what have we done to make sure that guy doesn't need to be as skeptical as he well, is? Well, first thing you tell that guy and any other guy is— And he ain't the only one. You know that. Oh, I know. <laughs> Simple fact is, the only way to guarantee you lose is you don't show up. Not showing up ain't a strategy. No matter what you think's going on or went on or might go on. Now, you know. One thing we know, you think a lot of other stuff, but you know if you don't show up, enough people don't show up to support a candidate, you're going to lose. Losing is not a strategy. You can't govern if you don't win. The guy that lost does not get calls about what the tax rates ought to be, and you go down the list of every issue you want to talk about. So let's set that aside. You have to show up. If, we, if, if, I can't, if I can't agree or come to terms with somebody on that, then there's no saving that person or talking to them. They're just going to be, you know, think that, you know, the world's falling in on them and, you know, they're just totally depressed or whatever it might be. I mean, you got to get out of that funk and understand, number one, we're going to work on the other stuff, but your butt has to get to the polls. And you got to get other people standing next to you at work, sitting next to you at church to go show up. Now, if we can agree on that, then let's talk about what we're doing. And we are. And there's things that we've talked about here before on the show uh, in terms of uh, 
you know, taking advantage of, well, not advantage of, but taking account of the differences on a state-by-state basis in terms of uh, uh, how elections are run, election laws have changed, what we're doing with our Bank Your Vote project uh, to expand early voting, particularly in key presidential states and with those key Senate races this coming year. Because if we don't expand our Republican electorate in those states, we're not going to win. We've got to expand the Republican electorate in Pennsylvania and in Arizona and, you know, just go down that list of about five to seven states. And there are things that we're doing pushing back uh, where we can legislatively, things that we're doing legally. We're involved in, the RNC just as, itself is involved in 72 lawsuits right now around the country on things related to election integrity. Uh, you know, we're just, just, we're just, it's lawfare. That's the game now. And that's, you know, we, we, we're behind or had been, they got on it quicker than we did. This cycle, we've caught up and we've got as many lawyers as they do and we're suing everywhere. So ballot harvesting is a part of elections moving forward and Republicans have to it, accept that. Depending on what state you're standing, let's say California, for instance. We don't run the legislature in California. They ain't changing that law. Ballot harvesting is legal. Drop boxes are legal. All right. Our guys have to be better at drop boxes and ballot harvesting. Now, it would interest you to know that last year when we took back the Congress, we did so on the back of winning congressional seats in California and New York. That's what gave us the majority. How did we win them in California? Ballot harvesting. So we worked with Hispanic churches in key districts in California and put drop boxes in those churches. Well, those folks, they, they trust the pastor. They'll go put the, put the ballot in the drop box in the Hispanic church. Districts like that helped us win a majority in Congress. So adapting to what those rules are, because until you get power, you can't change and tighten up those rules and make them more secure. And that's unfortunate, but it's a fact. And, again, you can't govern if you don't win. Will the pending lawsuits have been litigated by the election in 24? Some will. I, I couldn't tell you how many, but, you know, it depends on how far back they were filed and where they were on the process. But some of them, yeah. Okay. I mean, how we, can, we just had victories in uh, Michigan, I think it was last week. You know, so. how, how can someone, I mean, you, you, I mean the, the call to action, I mean, mm-hmm. you, you said mm-hmm. it. Uh, you've told me this before, and I'll agree. Politics is not a, uh, a spectator sport. That's right. I mean, you got to get in the middle of it. Whatever degree you decide you're comfortable with, yeah. but you got to get off the couch and make yourself a part of the process. How can someone who wants to do it but doesn't know how mm, that's, begin? Yes, that's the thing. I mean, passion, great. We have to have passion. Call in the radio show, but don't vote. But we have to have training and preparation and organization after you have the passion, okay, uh, and direct it the right way to be successful. So get involved either with a candidate directly or with the local party directly uh, because there are other folks who think just like you do that when we work together, we can have an impact. But, you know, it doesn't help if you're passionate, you believe the right things, and all you do is sit behind a keyboard and, you know, go on Twitter or, or call the radio show. Call the radio show, yeah. right. you got to get involved. Uh, so I'd tell it, go to scgop.com. Get your name on the list right now so we can let you know when there are meetings in your area, when we have stuff coming up, opportunities to be poll watchers and poll workers next year. The buffet of things out there that you can do. Everybody doesn't like doing the same thing. We just need you to do a little bit more than what you're doing right now. We'll explain. Thank you, Drew. Yes, sir. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937 is our number. We are live at a Hilton Hotel. Uh, I don't want to say the Hilton Hotel because there are a lot of Hilton Hotels, but we are at a Hilton Hotel, Kingston's Plantation, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, for the first in the South, not the first ever, first in the South Republican Action Conference. We've had Congressman Russell Fry with us. We've had SCP, SCGOP Chairman, a bunch of acronyms here, uh, Drew McKissick <laughs> with us, um, talking about the, you know, why this is important, why this is vital, why this is um, critical. The one thing that I'll say, and, uh, you know, I talk a lot about the Seinfeld voter, the Seinfeld watcher, 
um, you know, a bit disinterested, uh, a bit, you know, um, and I get it. I mean, I understand it. Politics is very, my wife had a great take. Uh, remember the Taylor Swift song, this before she became, she would have been a star, but not a megastar. And she had a song, why you want to be so mean or why you got to be oh, so yeah. mean or that's something a, like that. a big hit. My wife always said that. That's, she sang that about politics. <laughs> politics. Yeah, why yeah. you got to be so mean? Why everybody got to be so, so mean? And it's not for the faint of heart. I mean, it's honestly not. And I've always felt the Seinfeld watcher decided to be a Seinfeld watcher because they just didn't like all that. I mean, I, man, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to do that. I don't want to hear that. I don't want to be around that. It's conflicting. It's controversial. Uh, there's a lot at stake. You've got um, you've got lobbyists on one side and lobbyists on the on the other side, consultants on one side, consultants on, on the other side, and and I've often thought of this: uh, the nature of politics. Think of this for a second, Rev. The nature of politics. Now we're talking about the price of food. I don't know anybody. I mean, at times they they'll 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 be very subliminal in their messaging, but they'll say my burger's better than their burger. But, but, but in essence, what, what they, the normal way to advertise is, I got a good burger. I got a good price. They, they hardly ever say, hey, my burger's good, but theirs sucks. You know, <laughs> right. it's my burger's a third of a pound, their burger's a quarter of a pound. And, and you, but, but in politics, there is enormous benefit to telling the voters how bad your opponent is. And I, I've just always wondered, it's an experiment, I mean, it's an interesting experiment in commerce to me. Because I'm marketing my product, my candidate, my campaign, my vision, my belief, my political philosophy. And I'm telling you that, that not only should you like me, you better watch this other guy. I mean, this, this other lady over here, you know what but, they're but it's, doing. It's got to be an interesting, I guess, interesting to think about if you're a campaign. Because what you hear from a lot of voters, and probably mostly the, the Seinfeld watchers, is that I just don't like that negative campaigning. But 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 it show it works. But it works. It works. I mean, they, you know, and, and I'll tell you. I mean, I'd love to pass a law that says no more negative campaigning. I mean, if your burger's better than their burger, you'll sell more burgers than they do. You know, if if your car's better than their car, you'll sell more cars than theirs does. But but we just don't live in that world. I mean, politics has it's it's an interesting science. I mean, it, it truly is, and it's not for everybody. I mean, once again, my wife was like, "Man, I mean, you go save the world." But I don't want to be around all that conflict. I mean, it, it, everybody's mean and on edge and, and worked up. And, uh, and you know, uh, talk radio is, I mean, let's be honest, we've contributed to some of that. We've allowed people a, um, an avenue to express or vent their frustrations, feelings, emotions about the, uh, about the country. So um, but, I don't but, wanna... then, but then social media on top of that, that's where it really gets nasty. I mean, I mean and, and that's where, and I understand when Nikki said last week about anonymous posts and anonymous I mean, I've always wondered, okay, you're going to call me a no-count, no-good son of a gun and encourage other people to not vote for me, but you're not man or woman enough to put your name to it. It's a little bit like the, um, the Citizens United case that allowed dark money and political action committees. I understand that the Roberts Court, I understand John Roberts' opinion. I've read the majority opinion that, um, you know, the First Amendment gives a corporation a right to express themselves by making financial contributions. I've just always felt the cleaner way the more honorable way to conduct politics in America is if I'm going to say Dave Baker sucks, then I need to say I'm Ken Arden. and I approve yeah, this yeah, message. Yeah, sign it, right. Yeah, I mean, be man or woman enough to say, hey, my opponent sucks, and I don't need, you know, the Koch brothers to tell or George Soros to tell um, you or me that, uh, that the opponent sucks. I'm willing to say it 
uh, myself. 843-661-0937 is our number. And they're uh, getting started with the breakfast. Uh, I was kind of looking over the itinerary here for the uh, First in the South Republican Action Conference. And uh, the group, we, we, of course, we've seen them all come through the lobby where we're set up. And they're doing their breakfast now. And let's see if I can find the itinerary because they do have a list of, of dignitaries sure. that, are, that are here Some and that will shots. be presenting. Some big shots will be here. Um, there, there's a couple of uh, presidential candidates who you may not know are presidential candidates. Uh, Dr. David Stuckenberg and Ryan Binkley uh, will be presenting today at 11 and at 12 noon. Um, then at 2 o'clock, education discussion with Senator Greg Hembry. And Greg's Dr. Good, Oren Smith. Yeah, Greg's a good guy. Oren's a good guy. I know both those. Um, I don't know the presidential candidates. That means, you know what? They're not real presidential candidates. They're um, self-promoting. Uh, we'll call it like we see it here. Yep. Um, they're not really presidential candidates. But Greg Embry's a good guy, senator from down to the beach, former solicitor um, down here. And uh, who else did you say? Uh, Dr. Oren Smith. Smith. Yeah, Oren was uh, very involved in the right to life, the, uh, the pro-life movement in South Carolina, family council and all these other um, sorts of things. So, yeah, it'll be an interesting weekend. Um, no college football, right? I mean, you got an Army-Navy game, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. I don't know if you saw this or not. But but there, there were people who had hotel rooms booked for the Army-Navy game that were informed yesterday their hotel rooms were no longer available oh, because oh. of some of the um, – the illegal immigrants that have been oh, shipped into some of these. Me. I think Philadelphia may be where the games played. Oh, and, that's um, terrible. They, they called some of the um, some of the members of. I mean, they went to the Army or Navy, and they go to the game historically, and they stay at these hotels, and the hotels have been overbooked, and their rooms are not available now because um, some of these red state governors are shipping some of these illegals to blue states. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, it's interesting, Philadelphia. I mean, think of that, Philadelphia. Uh, you know, when, when, when Republicans hear the name Philadelphia, you know what we think? You're going to have a hard time winning there. You're going to have a, a real hard time um, winning there. 843-661-0937 is our number. And, um, and, and we're back to business as usual. We're, we're not where we normally are, but we're doing exactly what we normally do. And we believe this next hour could be um, yours. I mean, you call in, whatever it is you've got to, to talk about. Interesting that Drew says – they're not embracing ballot harvesting, but they're accepting ballot harvesting as a part of elections moving forward. And I mean this. I mean, it is not a good old boy in Pamplico who says the election was stolen in 20. They're going to steal it again. There are millions and millions of good old boys and good old ladies who say, don't let what happened in 20 happen again in 2024. Take a break. Back in a few. It's our last hour at the Hilton, excuse me, yeah, the Hilton, am I right? Yeah, yep, the Hilton yep, yep. Uh, Hotel, Hilton downtown Myrtle Beach. Yeah, I'm going to say downtown Myrtle Beach. I like to say that. Downtown Myrtle Beach. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Even though we're not. <laughs> Even though we're not. Is there a downtown Myrtle Beach? I think there is the process down here. I mean, I talked to someone recently about some of the, um, some of the efforts to recreate or rejuvenate uh, some of the downtown area, but we are not adapted with Kingston Plantation. Hilton Hotel. I guess uh, when I think uh, back to the old days of Myrtle Beach, Pavilion, Pavilion, I mean, exactly. the Pavilion would have been kind of the, the, the downtown epicenter of what all happened um, there. I want, I want to pose a question to you, and the reason I'm doing this, Rev got tied up on a phone call during the break mm-hmm. and didn't get Edith's croissant. It's just sitting right here, and it so, looks good. So I, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, everyone's going to get stalking. I'll start eating my, yeah. my croissant. No, I, I got a lot of questions for oh, you. Okay. <laughs> Thanks a lot. I got a lot of questions for you. Um, about, that thing about, smells good, too. So, so when you think think of the American experiment and you think about, you know, the, the American political scene, 
Is there – I mean, obviously you know the answer with me is Jefferson. I mean, I think it's a quintessential American statesman, uh, diplomat, politician, whatever you'd like to refer to him as. Um, and then you've got uh, – and I, I don't know if anybody else rivals. Maybe Adams. I mean, I guess to some degree Adams does. The concept of America, um, you know, what, what inspired people to want to be involved in self-government. I go back to my wife. I mean, you know – I mean, obviously, one of the best ladies I know, probably the best lady. I know I've been married to her for, for the – I can't say anything other than other than that. But, but you know, um, believing that politics is too conflicting and, and, and controversial and complicated and, I mean, it pits man against man, woman against woman, idea against idea. I mean, it, it is the – I mean, it's just the um, – it's at the center of who we are, though. I mean, if, if we're going to govern ourselves – then, then men and women are going to be involved in that experiment in self-governance and you're going to have winners and losers. You're going to have ideas that progress and ideas that die on, uh, on the vine. I read a little bit last night about um, the Federalist Party and once Jefferson um, and, the, and the Democratic Republicans kind of became the dominant force in early American politics, the Federalists kind of went by the wayside. And then you had, um, I mean, in, in all, it, Jefferson would have been, and this is kind of wild, when you think of Jefferson, you don't think liberal. But Jefferson's entire philosophy was based on neoclassical liberalism. Liberal referred to the word liberty, you know, give me liberty or give me death, life, liberty, and the pursuit of, um, of happiness. And, and I guess, you know, when, when I get a bit nostalgic and almost romance about the American government, I, I do, I get frustrated, I get aggravated, I get angry, I get bothered. But it is, it is almost one of a kind. I mean, it really and truly is. You've got people from all sorts of different walks in life. And, you know, when we go to a Gamecock Tiger football game and you're sitting beside or standing beside somebody, you don't know whether they believe in less government or more government, lower taxes or higher or higher taxes. But, but, but all of a sudden you get in one of these, you know, one of these venues, one of these political parties, and, and it forces you to, to be a little more conflicting that, than you normally are, a little more confrontational. Um, that than you normally are. I wish, I mean, I, I do with every fiber of my being, I wish we could restore some of the dignity that this process deserves. But, but I don't know how we do. And very often, Rev, I ramble around and start thinking about, okay, when did we lose our way? Well, I mean, first of all, you got to ask yourself, have we lost our way? And I think we have. I mean, I think personally we've lost our way. I don't think it's my fault. I don't think it's your fault. I don't think it's his fault or her fault. But collectively, we, we've allowed ourselves and this experiment in self-government to be contaminated by a lot of different things that don't have the interest of the people we're trying to govern over. And I go back to the, the story I read yesterday, because I'm going to get your take on this. You'd be an interesting okay. case study here. So Joe Biden is basically arguing that because some of the big pharma companies were able to, I mean, they're selling medicine to Medicaid. They're selling medicine to Medicare. They, they've used some of the government research universities. I mean, they, you know, in other words, they, you didn't, what, what did Obama say? You didn't build that by yourself. So you didn't really create that drug by yourself. And because of not really creating that drug by yourself, there has to be some shared partnership here. In other words, that's, that's your property, but it's kind of our property too. And, and normally conservatives would say, whoa, 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 pump the brakes on that. I mean, that, you know, let's use the Pfizer vaccine as an example. Right. So, so here's a hypothetical for you. You're a smart guy. So Pfizer gets a lot of favor from the government. But they did something that very few people in the world can do. 
I mean, they, they created a vaccine. Um, you know how to do that, Rev? I don't. Do no, you? I no mean, way. where would you begin not. in creating a vaccine? <laughs> I don't know. So, so, so Pfizer makes enormous amounts of money. Um, now, now, the government, and this goes back to the partnership, the collaboration, the crony capitalism. The government says, okay, we'll waive some of the red tape, some of the, uh, some of the required testing, some of the, um, you know, the, uh, the rigid or, or the rigidity of the method to get a, a medicine to market. We're going to waive some of that. We're going to grant you some immunity. So if the vaccine after the fact turns out to be not quite as safe as we told people it was, we're going to give you some, some immunity there. The taxpayers are who subsidizes the government. The government doesn't have its own money. So when the government makes a decision like that, they're speaking on behalf of me and you and everybody else. So what, what right does the government have? I mean, once Pfizer agrees to accept government support, government help, do, does that become, is it still... Pfizer's copyright? Is it their patent? It, do, do they have exclusive authority over that vaccine or is Biden known to something? And, and, and the government does have a right to say, that's not really all your property. That's your property, but we kind of sort of helped you get there. See, I'm not very comfortable. I mean, you know, government obviously has the right and the responsibility to, to regulate from safety purposes. I mean, they, they have protocols in place. But they went above and beyond. You'll they, agree they in this, in this extraordinary did. circumstance, yep. the government went above and beyond. They the did. government became somewhat of a partner with Pfizer. And, and then all of a sudden Pfizer says, but I got to believe some conversations behind closed doors. Pfizer has a representative in the room and the representative says, hey, man, you're asking us to do this a lot quicker than we normally do. What if this thing isn't safe? I mean, we're not going to have. give them some special immunities, well, that, that's too? That's where I'm headed. Yeah. So, so, so in that negotiation, the government's speaking on behalf of the taxpayer, right? So, so if Pfizer decides after the fact, I mean, if Pfizer decides to, now if Pfizer says, no, we're not going to bring this, this vaccine, we're not comfortable, we don't want the blanket immunity, we'll get there, but not as quickly as you want us to get there. I understand what you're saying then. There's no doubt about it. I mean, it's Pfizer's and Pfizer needs to do whatever. And if they want to charge a million dollars a shot, then charge a million dollars a shot. But, but I think conceptually the argument is a little bit like Obama said. You didn't build this thing yourself. You know, we all kind of contributed in some way, shape, or form. Now, now once again, I understand why the government did it. I mean, that would have been the Trump administration. I understand cutting the red tape. You, you just said the government has a right to regulate. Well, the government kind of gave up some of its regulatory authority. Yeah, they did. You're you right. understand why they did it? I understand yeah. why they did it. But out of that came an enormously profitable endeavor by Pfizer. So does the government have a right to tell Pfizer, that's too expensive? I mean, that shot you're offering is too expensive. That cancer treatment you're offering is too expensive. That diabetes medicine you're offering is too expensive. And, and we're going to basically put a price cap. I mean, we're going to say you can't charge any more than that for this medicine because we helped you along the way to create this medicine. I'm using the vaccine as an example because we know more about that than we do the latest, greatest diabetes drug or the latest, greatest cancer drug. I mean, people know more about the vaccine than they do any of those other, other drugs. And I think what we're, I mean, what we're seeing right before our very eyes is conservative-minded people say, you know, you just say it. I don't know how I feel about that. Right. The, the only answer for a conservative 20 years ago was no. Yep. I mean, of course not. But we've allowed government to become so influential, so intrusive, so involved, so much a part of our economy 
that, that it's almost like J.D. Nance is right. You know, the, 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 day, the debate of limited government is over. I mean, we lost that. Those of us who are conservative-minded and believe in less government, we lost that debate. You don't like it, I don't like it. But now we're arguing about big government or bigger government, bigger government and the biggest government, the biggest government and socialist government, socialist government and communist government. I mean, that's kind of where we're, where we're debating. I don't know anybody in my world serious about smaller government, limited government. I mean, do we believe that Congress is going to pass a bill tomorrow to balance the budget? I mean, do we really believe that Congress tomorrow is going to get together and say, hey, we're spending too much damn money? And the only reason we're spending all this money is some of the entitlements, some of the Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security. Well, we got to stop this. I mean, we really got to stop it. And uh-huh. it may cost you your job, may cost me my job. So we, we basically got in bed with big government. I mean, you're looking yeah, forward afraid, to the day you right. get Medicare. You're looking forward to the day you get Social Security. I mean, you, you're kind of a libertarian socialist just as mm-hmm. I am. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I read the article, and a good Republican friend of mine sent me the text and said, this is the beginning of them taking away all our property rights. Hmm, maybe, maybe. But, but once Pfizer or a drug company accept government support, aid, or assistance, aren't they kind of exposing themselves to the, to, to the, to the volitions of a big government? I mean, Joe Biden is a, is a liberal. I mean, he's kind of a classic liberal. He would be a Northeast Delaware big government. I mean, I don't think he's a radical liberal. I mean, I think Obama was a radical liberal, uh, an extremist liberal. I don't think Biden, when he knew what he was doing, <laughs> I mean, I don't think he knows what he's doing now, but when, in, in, in the good old days of Joe Biden knowing what he was doing, he would have been a, a liberal in the traditional sense. Um, you know, and, uh, what, uh, what, Amtrak. Amtrak loses money. But Amtrak's a big part of our getting around the country, so let's subsidize Amtrak to some degree. I mean, government needs to help that. I mean, it makes the world, it makes the world a better place, helps people get from point A to point B. No big deal. A million dollars, two million, three, four million, oh, it's a hundred million, you know, two hundred million, a billion. Did, did we really give Amtrak one point six billion last year? You saw I mean oh, yeah. and that's the nature of government right. intervention or involvement. But I and I'm gonna, I'm gonna do a lot of reading over the weekend about this this Biden edict. I mean, it's not an executive order. It's basically a warning to Big Pharma. If you don't do something about your prices, we're going to do something for you. I mean, if you don't decide to, mm. to, to make drugs more affordable to the consumer, and I'm telling you, there are a lot of Republicans that are going to be sympathetic to that. There are a lot of Republicans that are going to be, if, if, if the government hired me to be their lobbyist and made me go around and speak to Republican groups, I'd say, well, I mean, they really didn't build that drug. I mean, the government gave them blanket immunity. The government gave them some opportunities in research universities. The government gave them less red, red tape. Pfizer could have always said, hey, can't do it. We're not comfortable doing it. I mean, I, I know it's going to be highly profitable. I know we probably need to be a part of this because there ain't many drug companies in the world that make mRNA vaccines, but we're, just, we're not comfortable going down that road. If they do that, they're completely separate of government. I mean, if they, the, the typical criteria the FDA ascribes to a, a vaccine and, and then they come and say, hey, you're charging too much for the vaccine. I mean, they tell the government, leave me alone. We do what we want to do. We, we met every criteria that you put out. We, we, all the FDA requirements, uh, all, all the uh, all, whatever, all the testing that you require us to do, we've done. But they didn't do that. And, and I just wonder how many Republicans, how many conservative-minded people would be somewhat sympathetic to that practicality 
in uh in said negotiations. And, 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 and is the is the question then what is the I mean it's changed. That is a change of mindset amongst you know quote conservatives or Republicans. But it's a change of what we've allowed ourselves to accept as normal. In yep. the good old days of, of of conservative government, we would have said no, of course not. You can't go down that road. But but all of a sudden we softened our stance a little bit. <laughs> because you're talking about more government. Sure. But more government no, control. But we're also talking about lower drugs. Yeah. Lower drug prices. Which would be in the well, interest I mean, of in the interest of the consumer. People. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So 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 in and I mean you got and I'm just picking on You're Pfizer. confusing the crap well, I mean, out no, of me. No, I'm confused. <laughs> Because I feel a way I don't like to feel. I, know. I mean, I'm going like, yeah, I mean, it would be nice for that drug to be cheaper, yeah. you know, or the, or the medicine to be more affordable. Um, and I don't know what, it, what, what a medicine's worth. I mean, I don't have any idea what, what, what should a mRNA vaccine cost. I don't have any idea uh, what, what it should cost. I just think there's a complicated, there is no doubt the liberal Democrat would say yes. I mean, to make the drugs cheaper, let the government mandate of the private enterprise to do X, Y, or Z. That's in their bones. I mean, they have no trouble saying that. They genuinely believe that that makes the world a better place. You and I find ourselves conflicted because we're like, no, I don't want more government. But, but the government did kind of aid and assist them getting to where they are, and they did make a ass of money. I mean, did you see their quarterly profits? I mean, you know, we, we, we kind of, and I think that's the, 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 Remember when Congressman Fry talked about the, the I don't know, the, the tinge of populism, you know, the strain, the thread, whatever you want to call it. It's not a populist party, but, but populism is, I mean, I'd argue populism is the most powerful raw political energy you could ever unleash on uh, one political party or the other. And that's kind of what we're, we're saying grace over. I'm going to do some digging over the weekend to find out specifically what exactly the Biden administration are recommending, and we'll come back and have kind of a debate on what conservatives are comfortable with. And there's no doubt liberals are comfortable with it. I mean, we know that to be the case. But where do conservatives land on that? Well, and the interesting, I mean, I guess the next, uh, the part of this that's a little bit different, obviously we're talking about COVID vaccines or whatever. Um, not only was the government, you know, helpful in pushing through, you know, whatever they, however they smoothed the, the, the takeoff uh, runway for the, the research development and release of, the, um, release of the vaccine, how many of those dosages did the government pay for? Nearly all. So that, that's an interesting other factoid as part of this. Uh, uh, and when you say the government, you're in essence saying the taxpayer. Yeah, Take exactly. A Take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. Welcome back to Wake Up Carolina, home of the, um, the, 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 the socialist libertarian or the libertarian socialist. Depends on if it's your government or, or my government. I've got Rev all goofed up. You. i tell you what. You know, like, you're giving me conflicting uh, thoughts. I'm going to have to think this through. I'm going to dig into the edict. I mean, it's, it's, it's an executive order. It's not an order. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a strongly encouraged letter to big pharma to make sure you're making your medicine affordable. If not, we may take matters into our own hands because we've helped you create these medicines. And it does go back to Obama. You know, you didn't really build that. Uh, let's go to the phone. Then we got two guests here. Larry in Sumter listening to WDXY. Good morning, Larry. You're on the air. Good, Good morning. Hey, Larry. How are you? Uh, I'm doing pretty good. Uh, now that they've uh, indicted uh, Hunter Biden, uh, will they be? Uh, will they do him like they did Trump? You know, do the perp walk and everything, and take him down and book him and 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 do a mugshot. 
and and if they do, will Joe Biden be using that mugshot to you know uh, try to get campaign donations? Thank you, Larry. Appreciate that. You know, one of the interesting parts of the entire campaign season, because I'm making a, I mean, I've said this, so it's not earth shattering. I mean, I think the, the primary is over. I mean, I don't see any path forward for anybody not named Donald Trump. I mean, I understand Iowa can get complicated. I understand the momentum out of Iowa could, you know, make New Hampshire a little more competitive. I just don't see that. I mean, I really and truly don't. Um, I mean, if I were giving advice to two candidates, you know what I'd tell Ron DeSantis? You should have waited. I mean, that's after the fact. And I would tell Nikki Haley, don't come to South Carolina and get embarrassed. I mean, that, that would be what I would tell those two candidates if they – no, no, they don't ask me, but that's what I'd say. Um, the, the, the trial is going to be a part of the campaign. And I've got this crazy theory that the more the trial is a part of the campaign, you turn Trump into somewhat of a sympathetic figure. Um, the, the encouraging part to me, and I think Drew elaborated on this a bit, Trump is a complicated political figure. We all know that. He cuts both ways. He's his own worst enemy at times. I can relate to that. He's, but, but he's very unique. But he's hard to gain sympathy for. He's not the kind of guy <laughs> that you easily feel sympathy toward but he's creating some of that. And I think the, 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 the prosecution that I'll call the persecution of Donald Trump will lead to a sympathetic element within independent-minded voters. Republicans are digging in. Democrats will dig in whether it's Biden or not. The Seinfeld watcher's up for grabs. And I believe that as the Seinfeld watcher learns more about the trials, they'll be more sympathetic toward Donald Trump, and they'll think about what gas cost and what groceries cost and how the economy felt in 2024, that's why I'm optimistic about his chances of being reelected president. And I think it'd be cool for radio for a guy to get elected in 16, maybe or maybe not beaten in 20, come back and win again in, uh, in 2024. Good for our business. It's I'm very sure. good yeah. for our business. And we're self-serving, um, you know, capitalist anyway so so why wouldn't we want it to play out that if way it's good for us i'm for it yeah um w- one of the one of the topics we discuss on our show from time to time is the convention of states i mean it, it gains momentum more people are interested uh some people are becoming more educated about the convention of states we have with us a couple of guests um larry hill who's a local guy and christine Poyet, I want to make sure I get the, the last name right. She's been with us before talking about the Convention of States. I'll, Christine, I'll start with you, if you don't mind, because I'm a good old Southern gentleman, ladies first, as far as I'm concerned. Um, what exactly is the Convention of States, and why did you get involved? Convention of States is a national organization that encourages grassroots support and people being involved in self-governance so that the government has been established for to serve the public and the public has been asleep for a long time. So we're trying to wake them up and get involved in our own government, in our own states, in our own local regions. So we are self-governance organizations. So what does Convention of States wish to accomplish? What are some of the priorities? The, the first priority that we have and what we've been working on for, since 2010 is um, the establishment of a Convention of States for the purpose of writing amendments to the United States Constitution. And we have technically 19, but actually 20 states that have 
uh, pass the resolution in each of those states, we have to get to 34 states. And you didn't make this up. The founders saw in their infinite wisdom that there may be a time that we need to convene the states. Yeah, they were, they were prescient enough to recognize that human beings can control power and want more power. And it took us 200 and how many years? 247. Yeah. 47. 47 years to get to that point. But um, we recognize that it's time to, for the people to take the power back. And this convention would involve all 50 states it would be a process in which amendments are introduced. Article 5 of the United States Constitution is the article that discusses how amendments are proposed to the Constitution. And it, it says that it would be by two-thirds of Congress, both chambers. Um, and then uh, an amendment could be written, voted on by Congress, and then sent to the states for ratification. And the night before they finished their debates on the Constitution in the, in the initial convention in, in uh, 1787, they decided that the people needed to have, the states themselves needed to have a way to add amendments to the Constitution, and this is what they put in. And this is the first time it's actually been considered and being used. There have been many, many proposals for amendments to the Constitution, but they just all collapse and fall. So we're hoping that we can get a convention of states together that will debate and discuss and propose amendments which would then go back to individual state capitals and legislatures for ratification. So, so Larry, you're from here. I mean, you, so, so obviously South Carolina may be more favorable um, toward this. How do we stack up in other states? I mean, what, what are, I guess what I'm asking is in, in the presidential election, we got swing states. You know, we, we got some states we know are red, some states we know are blue. We got a few states that we kind of wonder, okay, is a Republican or a Democrat going to win this? So, so at, at the national level, who seems to be most interested in the concept or idea you guys support? I would say if you look at the map where we have been ratified, it is primarily in the southeast. Um, and in the southeast, regrettably, South Carolina was sort of late to the show. Uh, we were the first state to submit the the legislature for convention of states we we signed and put it out on on the morning and then that afternoon virginia did it but it took us nine years to to get it approved in south carolina and i won't go into the politics and the bureaucracy of why that happened but the the primary you know if you look at conservatism in united states we probably sort of feel that the Southeast is a bastion for conservatism. Are there groups like yourself working in other states, and do you communicate to kind of get a gauge as to whether we're succeeding or not in some of these other states? Right now, Convention of States, and I, I don't mean for this to sound like a, a bragging statement, but Convention of States is recognized to be the most forceful grassroots movement in the United States. And how did we get there? Well, we got there through a lot of hard work. We got there through a lot of communication. Yes, we communicate all the time. And for instance, if there's something going on in North Carolina and the South Carolina Convention of State petition signers need to help out North Carolina, we'll do that or we'll help in Georgia. And they have helped us too. We're a strong, strong organization. 
gives me a lot of pride to, to belong to something like that, that if you look at the, the history of the United States, this is probably the, the biggest and best grassroots organization that has ever existed. Christine, is it hard to accept that you have to be patient? I mean, you're asking a lot. I mean, you're asking to basically change the Constitution, amending the Constitution to big deal. The founders intended for that to be a big deal. We're, we're kind of an instant gratification society. Does it frustrate you that this is a long, hard journey? Yeah, <laughs> unbelievably long, hard. I've spent a lot of but nights. But isn't that what the founders year. intended? I mean, didn't they yeah. intend this to be long and hard? But no, they can, especially hard. Nothing, nothing. If we're going to change the Constitution, nothing should be easy. Um, the hard part for me is that my personal conviction and my ability to see where we were and, and what we're trying to accomplish is hard, and every defeat is a personal defeat because we're so involved in this. So I take it personally and, and it's crushing. So you're up in Columbia for a meeting and, and it goes down and you, you've spent all that time. At, but you give yourself a couple of hours to a couple of days and you start the fight all over again. You go back to every one of those legislators and you say, why'd you do this? You know, this is not in people's best interest and give us a chance or come up with a different argument or say the same argument using different words. But you just, you can't quit. We can't quit. Can a soldier quit on the battlefield? We can't quit. If you love this country, you just keep fighting for it. So very few people, and I just talked about the Seinfeld watcher, I mean, the Seinfeld Watcher has no idea what Convention of States is. I mean, they just don't. How are we educating, and are we doing a good job of educating people who are less interested in politics than we are? Well, there's, there's tons of people that aren't that are not educated. And so we do presentations at Lions Clubs, at Kiwanis Clubs, at veterans organizations. I did one a couple of weeks ago at a VFW. Um, we just keep we just keep making calls, going to organizations, and saying, "Would you like a presentation?" You know, um, there are a lot of places that don't want to get involved in politics at all, and we say we are nonpartisan, completely nonpartisan. We are American. I, um, I, I, you asked about how you keep going. About well, it was Veterans Day. I sent a note to my nephew, thank, thanking him for his service. He was a veteran, and he served. Uh, for a lot of years, including two, two tours in uh, Iraq. And I thanked him for my service, and he sent me a note back that has bolstered me for a long time. He said, I appreciate your concern, but you don't have to wear a uniform to be fighting for this country. And, and I, so that's how I keep going. Larry, Larry, last question. If someone wants to be involved, if they want to be supportive, if they want to know more, how can they help support your group and organization? Ken, if you don't mind, I'm going to go back to two things that you asked Christine. First of all, I want to make sure that your listening audience understands that we are all volunteers. Christine and I do this. We've done it. We were, we were comparing years this morning, eight for me and seven for her. We've done this all these years for, as volunteers because we want to. Second of all, your question about having patience. Um, I'm going to try to quote our good friend, Representative Jay Jordan from Florence. I remember Jay said one time, you know, it cannot be and it should not be easy to change a law or part of the Constitution. And when I get impatient, I remember Jay saying that. That gives me a, a lot of, of solace to say, okay, let's keep going. Now, to your question, um, we are a national organization, 
If anybody wants to get involved, first of all, you go to Convention of States. Just Google it and go on there. And what Christine and I would ask you to do is to first sign the petition. Sign the petition saying that we support Convention of States. That's very valuable when we go talk to a legislator and say you've got X amount of people in your district that have signed the petition. After that, we say, do you want to volunteer? Um, do you need more information? Would you become a leader as a district captain or a regional captain? Um, it, it's a whole gamut of volunteerism that you can, can do. I mean, from the least of it is to sign the petition, at the most become a leader. But uh, we're out there, we're very accessible. We have lots of great literature, explains it all. Uh, one of the best pieces of literature I think we have, it starts with Washington is broken. And if that doesn't get your interest to keep reading, I don't know what will, because it explains how Washington is broken and how we are trying to fix it according to Article 5. Well explained. Thanks to both of you. Thank you for the time. We'll Thank take you. a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937. You know, I get discouraged about America. I mean, I do. I, I, I have these ideas and premises and beliefs about what I, I think our country should stand for and stand on and be principled by and be guided about. And I get real discouraged because everything I believe in seems to be losing. You know what I mean? The, the, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the rugged individualism, the pursuit of happiness and freedoms and liberties and smaller government. I mean, those things that I believe were so, so fundamental to our founding and our, and our prosperity and, and future. It, it seems that people like things different than that now. And I get real discouraged about where we are and where we're headed. I mean, I'm not like, I mean, I saw yesterday, I think, De Niro. De Niro joined the Springsteen list of people who will leave you know, this country, if Donald Trump is, to, uh, is not going to let. I've, I've said this about De Niro and Springsteen. You're not airlines. I mean, nobody needs to know your departure time. I mean, if you leave, just leave. Exactly. A little bit like Joe Scarborough. You know, Joe Scarborough wrote a big op-ed to the New York Times saying he was leaving the Republican Party. Nobody asked Joe yeah. if you're leaving the party or not. So exactly. when Springsteen and De Niro say, if he wins, I'm leaving, you're not United Airlines. You don't need to give us a departure time. Hey, it's 747. This plane is going to leave at such and such. And no, I mean, don't think that highly Just of take yourself. Off. Yeah. <laughs> Depart. Don't announce your departure. <laughs> if we're all boarding a plane, we need to know when the thing's leaving, man. But I mean, these are these elitists who, you know, anyway. Um, but, but I do, Rev. I feel like that, that I've, I'm losing. And, and, I, and I go back to what Limbaugh said. Remember the late Rush Limbaugh. You've the one, you're the one that told me this. And I don't think I'd ever, I'd ever heard him say it. But he, he felt like a failure. And these were in his later days. He knew he was sick. And it was reflecting. Right, be- right, be- right before Christmas. What was that? Two, three, two or three years ago. And I was listening to his show. I was driving back from somewhere. And he was reflecting and saying he feels like a failure. Because he felt like he communicated you know, his message very effectively over the course of you know, the 30 years he was on national radio with the most listeners of anybody. Yet... You know, there there's still Democrats and liberal ideas in power, and he hasn't been able to, or he felt like he hadn't been able to, to affect change like he thought he should be able to, because all he had to do was articulate and sell it, and it and 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 good smart people and voters, and they would always be voting, you know, uh, in their interest the way he thought they should, and he felt like a failure because. There's still Democrats in control. Somewhere. And, 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 as, and as good as he was at communicating and articulating, he was not good enough. 
That, that's kind of what he said. Yeah. And I can relate to that. I mean, you know, as good as I think I am at articulating my point of view and, and kind of, I mean, my wife says I love to argue because I'm good at it. Well, I mean, I, I do. And I guess politics is a place that being pretty good at arguing or debating does, does serve you well. But, but I still believe that these fundamentals that I hold true, and I know I sound like a founder, these fundamentals that I hold true and believe in and try to adhere to, and, and, and impress upon my kids and my community and my network of, of associates. I just feel like I'm failing because I feel like the left is winning. Um, they've got control of the media. They've got control of higher education. They've got control of all these organized forces that are uh, kind of allied against what, what it is I believe in. But then I bump into two people that for eight years have volunteered with the Convention of States. Right. And just, I mean, no, no pay, no fame, no glory. No bright lights, no radio show. They just get up every day and, as a part of their existence, try to figure out a way to change the Constitution. And they knew how many states had ratified and how many had and where the less likely and the most likely. And to me, that's kind of the beauty of, of America. We all have this unbelievable ability to, to affect change. It, it, we just don't think we do. We don't believe we do. We feel like Limbaugh. You know, we feel helpless. And if anybody shouldn't have felt helpless, I mean, Limbaugh lived in a compound and went in Palm Beach, you know, starts talking on the radio, one day ends up in a compound in West Beach, or West Palm Beach. Let me, let me tell you this. You don't live in West Palm Beach in a compound unless you've done exceedingly well. Uh, monetary gain. I mean, he had a great, great influence on this country, but he got unbelievably wealthy as a result of that. So um, I don't know. I mean, I'm rambling about, but, but it does these sorts of days, this sort of interaction convinces me that the human spirit is alive and well. And there's a room full of people from different walks of life, different, I would say different political perspectives. Ain't a whole lot of different political perspectives uh, in that room. Pretty much think I mean, the same, I think. It's pretty it's, close. Yeah, I mean, if you want to see groupthink, walk down there and look in that door, <laughs> you'll see. But, I mean, I, there, there's some internal debate that the party has with itself and some disagreements uh, the party has with itself. But, you, you, I mean, it's, um, it's just an experiment in self-government. You've got somebody sitting there at the DeSantis booth. You've got somebody beside them at the Ramaswamy booth. Somebody sitting beside them at the Trump booth. Um, you know, I, I told the lady, I said, you know, just trying to figure her out, I said, um, y'all love Trump in Horry County. She said, we sure do. <laughs> <laughs> and I've seen recent polling. I'm not sure you're supposed to divulge it, but, I mean, I've seen a recent poll uh, of Trump in South Carolina, and it's staggering. I mean, it's, it's um, I'm glad I'm not the former governor of South Carolina having to make a decision as to whether I continue my campaign or not because if the polling is right, and, uh, and I'm not saying it's exact or perfect, but it's being consistent. And, and the most recent poll shows that there is a death grip, a death grip that a certain mindset or, or political, ah, this newfound ideology that we refer to as America first that is trying to kind of um, grow up and mature and become something that can sustain. And I've been very consistent with that. I mean, that that's my, my, my reason for being as politically motivated as I am is seeing the opportunity to advance a political, ah, it began as somewhat of a political nuance and, and, you know, kind of incidental in the grand scheme of things. But, but you know, and, and there are a lot of people who are responsible for getting it to here. Obviously, Trump is probably the most responsible. But you got Peter Thiel. Remember the day I said, how many of you ever heard of Peter Thiel? I mean, you can't see hands raised, but nobody raises their hand. Peter Till, who is that? And then you kind of you begin informing the masses about who he is and what he's done. And, um, and, and you've got this room full of people who aren't willing to write or can't write, you know, 
multiple millions of dollars or checks or, or can't put their name on a campaign sign and run for president, but they're doing their part, and God bless them. I mean, they're doing everything they can to do what they believe, they believe, let me say that again, they believe makes America a better place. And, 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 to, and that's kind of to, to Drew, Drew's point when he's on the air with us about the people that, you know, these are the poll watchers and the people that are volunteering their time, their efforts, and uh, they're out here doing the work. These are the offensive and defensive lines. Yep. We all get excited when that quarterback commits or that running back, a wide receiver. But I'll tell you, those those linemen, uh, you know, as Keith Jackson said, the big uglies. I mean, that's the ones <laughs> that carry the day. Enjoy your weekend. Uh, we'll be back come Monday morning.